Your move, creep. Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. The only thing I know how to do. It's a good-looking boy. I'm a member of the Imperial Senate. That's right, Lord. Welcome to Earth. You crossed the line. You know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Retrograde Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about older movies. We talk about how they were made, how they were received, and whether or not they hold up. I am Austin. And I'm George. So, Austin, we've got a special movie this week. I'm very excited yes. to talk about this. It is Mahalan Drive, directed by one of your favorite directors, David Lynch. My favorite director. Your favorite? Yep. Uh, on top of everyone, it is on top of everyone. He's my favorite. At the peak of Mount Everest, it's or at Mount my Mount Rushmore of filmmakers. It's David Lynch is one of them. The other ones, I don't know. <laughs> we could do an episode on that. Yo, that would be dope. That would be dope. We'll save it. We'll save it for yeah, later. <laughs> but yeah, no. So he is your favorite director. Yes, you're excited about this. I am excited about this. Why is he your favorite director? Um. I, I saw Eraserhead because I was looking for like twisted movies because I was like, I don't know. I was wondering if I could like handle it. You know, I wanted to like see if I could watch some really surreal, weird stuff. So I was like, all right, I'll challenge myself with Eraserhead. And it left me feeling so uneasy. Mm -hmm. And it was it was like funny, but it was like terrifying. But I didn't really know what it was about. But I, some, for some reason, I was just drawn to it. It wasn't like anything I had ever seen before. I didn't know movies could be like that. And I read a little bit about it. And I'm, I found out it was kind of like a passion project for him. And it took several years to make it. And I'm like, man, this dude put so much of his time and effort into this thing that I don't know if people like it as much as he does, I guess. I don't know. But he like believed in himself, I guess. And I don't know, for some reason, it seemed like film was something that I could do if I believed in something enough. How old were you when you saw Eraserhead? Dude, I was, I think I was like 18. Oh, wow. Okay. 18, 19. So it, you were definitely at that age where you're like, all right, I want something more. Sriracha's yeah. weak now. I need the next <laughs> level of spice. I wanted to see something different, and I I don't think I was expecting that. And it was just so, like, I think the word is atmospheric. Because yes. I think one of the reasons why I love movies and I love, like, video games is something that, like, takes me to another world, right? And how well it can do that. And this one, I did kind of, like, in my films in, like, college, I was inspired to do like some surrealist stuff um, about your subconscious and magical realism and weird stuff like that. I was kind of inspired by that. Uh, I don't know. It just seemed like if you have, it's, it's one of his things that he always says, if you have a good idea, you know, you got to like search for the good idea and then make that idea happen. Ideas are the number one best thing going. And ideas uh, come to us. We don't um, really create an idea. We just catch them like fish. 
So you get an idea and it is like a seed. And in your mind, the idea is seen and felt. And it explodes like uh, it's got electricity and light connected to it. And it has all the images and the feeling. And it's like in an instant, you know the idea in an instant. Then the thing is translating that to some medium. It could be a film idea or a painting idea or a furniture idea. It doesn't matter. It wants to be something. It's a seed for something. So the whole thing is translating that idea to a medium. And in the case of film, it takes a long time and you always need to go back and, and stay true to that idea. Keep checking that idea. And what you realize is the idea is more than you realize. And if you're true to it, when the work is finished and some years go by, you can even get more out of it, out of it if you've been true to the idea in the first place. He's really weird. but <laughs> He's a very weird guy, but he's fantastic, though. I love how he doesn't explain his films. He said... It's, it's, it became a meme afterwards. He said, uh, believe it or not, Eraserhead is my most spiritual film. And then the interviewer asked him to elaborate on that. And he just says, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny because when you have films that are very ambiguous, very dreamy, a lot of people will go to the directors or the writers and say, what does it mean? What does it all mean? And to a certain extent, a lot of them will kind of clarify kind of highlight specific things that the viewer should be looking for. Stanley Kubrick did that with 2001 Space Odyssey. That's how I was able to understand that movie. <laughs> but you are right. David Lynch really doesn't give too much, too many details about his films. You know, he'll talk about some of the general topics, like, you know, some plot points and stuff and kind of the feelings and stuff. But in terms of what does this mean? What does this symbolize? He's like, oh, well, you know, whatever you want it to be. Yeah. And I think it does make it more of an engaging watch because you're trying to like figure it out with with this film. I think Eraserhead is is a really weird movie that's kind of hard to follow. Uh, Mulholland Drive, I think, is kind of hard to follow. But I think there is like a solid story. There is like a definitive answer as to what it all means. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the most... I guess, coherent one out of all of his like super surreal stuff. Yeah. Not, not a straight story. That's a very, that's a straightforward. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, um, elephant man and dune and stuff like, like lost highway. Um, blue velvet, blue velvet, I think has like a cohesive plot. It's told in order. I don't think there's any dream sequences in it. Well, it's, but, it's very strange because it has a straight plot, but I get so confused watching that movie. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to get. Like, I understand that mm. beneath the suburbia, be beneath the the white picket fence and, you know, the the children riding their bikes and stuff like that. It, there's a seedy underworld. But I, I watched that movie. Mm. I was like, I don't get what I'm supposed to get out of this, which is very mm. strange because with Eraserhead, I kind of got a feeling. I was like, I think this is what I should be getting out of it. And same with Mulholland Drive. Blue Velvet's one of his films where I'm like, I, this is not registering for me. He's definitely not for everyone, I think. Mm -hmm. Like, it's weird because I, I love his stuff, right? But I remember a very specific moment when watching um, The Return, The Twin Peaks Return, mm -hmm. where I was like, I'm very into this. 
but I can see why people do not want to watch this right now. <laughs> you know? Yeah. With Lost Highway, I felt that way, but I love that one too. It's, oh, that's might be my, my favorite one. The one that like made me interested in filmmaking the most was Eraserhead. Mm-hmm. So that will always hold a special place in my heart. But Lost Highway is the, is the one David Lynch movie I've watched more than once. More than twice. <laughs> I haven't seen Lost Highway. I do know that Nine Inch Nails made the perfect drug for it. Yeah. And I, and that's why I want to watch it. I mean, it's David Lynch, so I am curious, but like... I love the soundtrack for that movie. David Bowie's on it. Smashing Bill, Pumpkins. Bill Pullman is in it, right? Bill Pullman's in it, yes. Yeah. Dick Laurent is dead. <laughs> <laughs> that means nothing to you because you haven't seen the movie. It doesn't. But I like uh, I like it when you quote movies and stuff. You add like a certain thing to it where I'm like, <laughs> it's funny. Even though I, I have no context for it, I'm like, eh, fuck it. The way Austin's telling that it's fun. Robert Blake is in that movie too. And I guess we should talk about this now. On the last episode, I made the mistake of saying that Danny Masterson was convicted of rape. He's not. He is to stand trial November of 2021. And he has the Church of Scientology, like, supporting him, um, allegedly intimidating the witnesses and everything, allegedly killing their dogs, or not killing the, the witnesses' dogs, the victims' dogs. Um, so it's... I mean, look, he killed was, a dog. That's already well, guilty the, as fuck. The Church of Scientology may have killed a dog. Definitely those dogs were killed intentionally, but we don't know by who. But it seems like it was the Church of Scientology because of their track record with suppressing victim testimony and trying not to get any of their people in high profile criminal cases. They prefer to settle things in civil court cases. But the reason I bring that up is because Robert, well, first of all, I do. I don't want to just say things that are untrue and pass them off as like factual i want to i don't want to contribute to all the misinformation out there that's i'm i'm tired of it i want to be someone that people can listen to and people to feel like oh he's he probably knows what he's talking about Uh, but second of all robert blake kind of had an oj kind of situation where he allegedly killed his wife and is kind of the thing where everybody thinks he did it but he got off he was found not guilty, but he never did a movie again. <laughs> um, so watching that movie adds like another layer of like creepiness to Robert Blake's character. In Lost he's Highway. Like, yeah, he's he's very creepy. We've met before, haven't we? I don't think so. Where was it you think we met? At your house, don't you remember? As a matter of fact, I'm there right now. That's fucking crazy, man. Hmm. (laughs) It is interesting bringing up Masterson and Robert Blake's character because this really ties in very well with the theme and premise of this week's movie, Mulholland Drive. It's about Hollywood, it's about Los Angeles, and it's about kind of this weird underground thing in Hollywood. And, I mean, David Lynch loves that. He loves the seedy, underground, 
scenes of different of different cities. I mean, he did it with Twin Peaks, mm. right? Yeah. When, when you first see Twin Peaks, it's a beautiful Oregon-esque kind of town with big, giant trees and stuff. And then you see about Laura Palmer. And then it gets worse from there. Blue Velvet, the exact same thing. You get mm-hmm. that from the very beginning of the film when you see the ear in the grass. The, the chopped and then up all ear. the cockroaches eating each other. Exactly. I mean, this man constantly goes back to that. And Mulholland Drive is another example of that. And my favorite example of that seedy underworld because mm-hmm. it, there's a lot of mystery and mm-hmm. intrigue. And it's about Hollywood manipulation and stuff and yes. the seediness that exists in Hollywood. Let's talk about the first time we've, we've watched this movie. Um, for me, it was recommended by my sister. I'm not sure if I had seen Eraserhead first or if I saw this movie first, but she was like, you should watch this movie. It's scary. Or I think she said it was scary. And she said that there's like, uh, it's hard to figure out what's what's happening. So I was like, okay. So I watched the movie, probably one of the best recommended movies i've ever had it's like next to like this the princess bride and the fall by tarsum singh uh and i I was like well this is movie is incredible i have no idea what's happening but i'm into it and then um she asked me after i watched it like did you get it did you know what was, was happening i'm like i have no idea and then she was like well you remember how the first thing you see is her going the the camera going into the pillow and i'm like Oh my God. And then something in my mind clicked and the movie like made sense to me in some way. Um, but this movie is kind of open to interpretation. It is. It very much is. It's super ambiguous. It is a mystery. And I mean, mild spoilers, I guess, but it's not really totally resolved. There is a moment where kind of things click into place a little bit towards the end, but it, you still have to do a lot of the legwork to try to get it, you know? Or you could just go on YouTube. I think I have a vague memory of this movie a long time ago, it being on TV. But I I can't remember if I actually watched it. I know the most recent time I watched it was uh, during the pandemic, you know, with my friends through Discord. And I was like, wow, this I can remember scenes, but I can't remember where I saw it or how old. <laughs> and I'm just like, it's a dream. I, but the movie's a dream. I'm like, ah, oh, what the fuck is happening? And but I, I love the movie. It's phenomenal. Very well directed. Mm-hmm. And it just gives you this sense of creepiness. You know, it's appropriate that we're doing it for October, you know, because it's a spooky yes. season. And it is a spooky season. And it has one of the most spine chilling jump scares I've ever had in a movie. <laughs> boy. Oh, my God fucked me up and <laughs> I, I i forgot about that or i don't even know if i've ever seen it but i watched it and i was like oh my god the build-up to it it just makes i don't think i've ever reacted in that way in a movie before this you know it's it's the uh it's what tarantino talks about he calls it the rubber banding effect yeah right where if you have a rubber band and you kind of or you stretch it out right you slowly stretch mm-hmm. it out if you let it go it's gonna snap real hard it might rip mm-hmm. that's what he talks about that's what he keeps in mind when he's writing scenes right and glorious ambassadors is an example of that this movie is kind of an example of that as well there are long scenes where maybe nothing is happening 
but something is happening and it's creating this yeah. tense feeling. And sometimes it's tense and suspenseful and it's creepy. Other times it's just uh just this sad atmosphere that is just oh, kind yeah. of stretching out for a long period of time and it's letting you sit there and real be there with it. And like you don't get it. You feel it. It's kind of like what you were talking about when we were discussing drive. Like it's it's a mood. Yeah. And it, but it, for me, this this works on me like a lot. <laughs> I, I love Drive. Drive is one of my favorite films. But I mean, damn, all in Drive, it's up there, too. It has a mood. Mm-hmm. It's selling you this mood and it does it really well. It keeps it going for two and a half hours. This movie's two hours and 26 minutes, but it keeps it going. I don't understand this movie a whole lot. Like, I can't tell you what all the symbols and what the scenes mean. The the, the scene in the theater, you know, where he's like, everything you're about to see is fake. And then the woman singing. I don't know what that's supposed to mean, but it it, it hits at my core for some reason or another. Yeah. And that I don't I may not understand it, but I'm entertained. I'm engaged. Mm-hmm. And that's why I love this movie. And it's so great to revisit because you're like, okay, what? Maybe I'll I'll catch something this time and maybe I'll make sense yeah. of this puzzle. It's like a Rubik's Cube, right? Mm-hmm. Can't totally tell you exactly what it's about, <laughs> but I love it. I'm looking forward to watching it again to seeing what else I get out of it. Oh, 100%. In case you would like to watch this film with us, I know that there's a pending strike and some people want to show support, so they're like trying not to watch things on Amazon or Hulu or Netflix. But apparently HBO, Showtime, and Stars are not a part of the strike. So if you want to watch this film and support this, the strike, support the below-the-line people on the film production, you can watch this movie on Showtime. There's a 30-day trial and if you use your 30-day trial for one movie, make it Mulholland Drive. Absolutely. Can I guarantee that you'll understand it? Probably not. But you will see, you will feel a mood. And it, I, I guarantee you if, you, if you just try and just try to look around the corner, try to see what's, what, what David Lynch is doing, you're going to see that it's like a... It's like a rabbit hole and you just want to keep going down it and just seeing, well, what does it mean? There is one thing that I maybe we want to include on this part of the episode. There was a DVD release of this movie and David Lynch, I don't know if it was him, but somebody put an insert in there with 10 clues to unlocking this thriller. You want me to read them for you? Go for it. For our listeners, in case you want to watch this movie and maybe have some hints as to what you're supposed to get out of this movie. Uh, Number one, pay particular attention in the beginning of the film. At least two clues are revealed before the credits. Two, notice appearances of the red lampshade. Three, can you hear the title of the film that Adam Kesher is auditioning actresses for? Is it mentioned again? Number four, an accident is a terrible event. Notice the location of the accident. Number five. Who gives a key and why? Six. Notice the robe, the ashtray, the coffee cup. <laughs> Number seven. What is felt, realized, and gathered at Club Silencio? Number eight. Did talent alone 
help Camilla. Number nine, note the occurrences surrounding the man behind Winkies. Number 10, where is Aunt Ruth? All right, shit, I'm going to like write those down and I'm going to keep them with me. <laughs> I'll send them to you. <laughs> yeah, because uh, already I'm like, well, I, I, I know what they're talking about accident and I know where it takes yeah. place, but I'm like, now I'm, tr I'm trying to put the pieces together right now. <laughs> this is this is a great mystery puzzle, guys. Like it this is. is a very interesting watch. It's worth a shot, man. This is look, people people consider this one of the greatest films of all time. They're not wrong. So just give it a watch. If it's not for you, hey, that's all good. But at least you gave a movie that you wouldn't have normally watched a chance. That that means you're increasing your film vocabulary. And that's all we could ever ask for. I also think this is a movie for people who like movies and who like Hollywood. Yes. A movie for people who maybe want to work in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, and I think that's also why it so spoke so much to me. Um, but let's talk about the year this movie came out. Yeah, let's talk about the box 2001, office. which we have covered before on our Legally Blonde episode. Number one at the box office was Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Number two, Shrek. Number three, Monsters, Inc. Number four, Rush Hour 2. Number five, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Number six, The Mummy Returns, the debut feature film of Dwayne The Rock Johnson <laughs> as the Scorpion King. Mm. Um, number seven was Pearl Harbor. Number eight was Jurassic Park 3. Number nine was Planet of the Apes, the Mark Wahlberg, Tim Burton reimagining of the movie. Which we have talked about in our Planet of the Apes about. Mm -hmm. episode. We, we talked about the 60 version, the 60s version, but we do talk about the Mark Wahlberg one as well. So go check that out. Number 10 was Hannibal. Oh, Ridley Scott. Which was a sequel of Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. But Austin, in what place did Mulholland drive Landon? In what place did Mulholland... Well, Mulholland... I'll tell you what. All these movies made more than $100 million at the domestic box office. I think Mulholland Drive only made $20 million. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that might be the worldwide box office. Domestic? Shoot. It made $5.7 at the domestic box office. It made more money than Monkey Bone, apparently. <laughs> oh, with Brendan Fraser. Yeah. This isn't a Harry Potter Monsters, Inc. type of movie. This is yeah. very different than that. All um, of those movies that we mentioned before were part of franchises or became part of franchises. Yes. This is definitely the anti-franchise film. I believe at the Oscars, David Lynch was nominated for Best Director. Yes, he was. He was nominated for Best Director. At the 74th Academy Awards. Can you guess what beat him? Or who beat him? <sighs> who beat him? Ron Howard for A Beautiful Mind. I don't remember watching that movie. I do remember liking it. But is it better than Mulholland Drive? I don't. I, I don't think so. Not, nothing against <laughs> Ron Howard and A Beautiful Mind. I do like that movie a lot. But Mulholland Drive. It's just so much deeper well the thing about it is i mean look let's talk facts a beautiful mind is a story that you can understand you watch it one time 
you get it, you understand it. If you repeat it, you might catch something new, you know, but it's very straightforward and it's a very well-directed film from what I can remember. And Russell Crowe was great. So Jennifer Connelly was great too. Oh, I forgot she was in it. But I mean, you know, and it's about a character struggling with a mental illness. You know, Oscars love seeing characters overcome their inner demons, you know, whatever like that. Right. It's it's very I, what's what's the word? It's Oscar Beatty in a way. Yeah. In um, a way, Mulholland Drive is, too, since it's self-reflexive of but, Hollywood. But, but this movie does it in a sinister way. Yeah, it shows the side of Hollywood that Hollywood maybe doesn't like looking at. That's why he didn't win. It, that's my guess. Uh, I mean, I I can't get in the minds of all the Academy Award voters, but I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if some of them said, I don't get it, or it's kind of scary, or eh, you know what? It doesn't paint Hollywood in the best light, so maybe let's not do it. <laughs> yeah. It, which is a shame because I... I would like for David Lynch to win an Oscar. I think he deserves it. I think he definitely deserves one. I think he'll get one of those honorary ones. Yeah. Um, I think that'll that'll be the closest he'll get to it, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. Because the way that people act in his movies, I feel like nobody gets the performances out of their actors that David Lynch does. The thing about David Lynch with his actors, what's really interesting is there is like, a certain level of artificiality that he'll ask of the actors, but it's not fake acting. It's like the kind of acting that fake friends will have with each other. I'm not trying to say that the acting's bad. The acting's very good. It's very, very good. And it makes sense for this movie. It does because it, because like, especially Naomi Watts, she has like, she's a newcomer in LA and Oh my God, the city of dreams. And she's kind of playing <laughs> up that like naive, that naive actress that's coming into Hollywood to make it big, you know? Um, yeah. But you, you, you'd kind of look at that as like, well, she's a bad actress. Well, look, it's so fake. It's like, yeah, that's the goal though. Like that's what mm-hmm. they're doing on purpose. And you can't even say that later on because later on, especially the scene when she auditions, yeah, that is like one of the Ooh. best directed scenes ever. And I, I 100% agree with you because l- earlier in the film, when she's rehearsing that scene, you know, she's like, oh, my God, I, uh, y- you know, she's playing it up. You know, she's putting that uh, soap opera feel to it. But when she's in the rehearsal room and she's acting opposite the guy, you're like, oh, shit, this has a totally different vibe. Mm-hmm. That's when the artificiality kind of shatters in a weird way you're like oh it this was this was part of it this everything was a part of it you you built her up to be the for you for you to think of her this way and then this moment just breaks that illusion and it's it's incredible david lynch people act a certain way in a david lynch film that you don't ever see them ever act in any other films for any other yes i think that's what i said but i I 100 percent agree 100 percent what are some things that you're going to want to look into after we watch this movie and come back with more researched opinion? I want to get into the theories of this movie and I want to figure out really what's at the core of this story. Really try to get myself, wrap my head around all these symbols and so, as much as I can, obviously. I, I'd mm-hmm. love to, to get some behind the scenes footage of this movie. 
just to see what it was mm-hmm. like at the time. I am kind of curious to see what the actors, uh, how they described working with Lynch, particularly Naomi Watts and Laura Herring. Okay. Laura Elena Herring. I want to see how they described working with Lynch. Because I've Naomi Watts has been in other David Lynch projects mm-hmm. since Mulholland Drive. Uh, so I want to see what it was like working with him, what they have to say. And we kind of talked about this one, maybe doing this for our um, Pride Month episode, because there is a LGBTQ themed romance between two of the female characters. Mm. I think Rita may be bisexual. Um, so I want to see, like, does, is it kind of like exploitative or is it like a... How is it aged? Kind of an, how, does, how is it aged? Is it kind of an authentic relationship or is it kind of like... Oh, look, girls kissing. You know what I mean? Which, because it's David Lynch, I'm going to shoot the exploitation down. But I think it is a good question to ask, how well has it held up? You know, because maybe Mm -hmm. what was revolutionary and very progressive back then may not have aged, you know, just because of the times and what we've learned Mm -hmm. about. Uh, what we've learned about sexuality and it just it's opened up the world's changed it's opened up so much more now mm. so it's it's always good to go back and check and see oh you know he was ahead of the time he knew where where people were headed you know or eh thank you for trying but you know what here here's this and this and this with how often his female collaborators they keep coming back for Naomi his Watts. films Naomi Watts Laura Dern Isabella Rossellini I feel like he does right by them. Are they they're okay with this the situations he puts them in? Granted, they are uh I know Naomi Watson and Laura Dern are straight. Well, there was this huge thing with um Laura Dern because she played Ellen's love interest in the episode of Ellen where she comes out. And Laura Dern did not get the same roles that she was offered before after that. It was almost like she was kind of being punished for playing a lesbian character. That's a damn shame. And that's why I think also, I mean, this must have been in the 90s, I imagine, because the show, Ellen, it was in the 90s. Um, This movie comes out in 2001. I I guarantee you, David Lynch might have been hinting at that. He might have known that, look, man, if you're a gay man or if you're a queer woman, once you come out, Hollywood's going to see you differently. You will not be able to play the same parts just because of your sexual orientation i hate to say it but it's true uh i think he might have been tying that idea into mahalan drive because it does come up i don't know man maybe he he knew what he knew what was up i'm curious to look back on this movie Mm -hmm. um i'm excited to watch it again um same and if as i mentioned before if you want to watch this movie with us you can watch it on showtime and you can start your free trial of Showtime, and this is totally the movie to waste your free trial on. It won't be a waste. It'll be a, it'll be like a, a treat. Don't think about it. Just give yourself a treat. <laughs> exactly. All right. We will see you in one minute. If you're trying to blackmail me, it's not going to work. You're playing a dangerous game here. You know what I want. It's not that difficult. Get out. Get out before I call my dad. He trusts you. You're his best friend. This will be the end of everything. What about you? What will your dad think about you? Stop! Just stop it! That's what you said from the beginning! 
Now, if I tell what happened, they'll arrest you and put you in jail. So get out of here before... Before what? Before I kill you. Then they'd put you in jail. <laughs> then I cry, cry, cry. And then I say with big emotion, I hate you! I hate us both! <laughs> Such a lame scene. But you are really good. Thank you, darling. <laughs> Hello, everybody. We are back from watching Mulholland Drive, directed by David Lynch from 2001. So, George, mm -hmm. how did you feel about revisiting Mulholland Drive for the pod? Uh, the movie's great. I fucking love it. It's a weird trip. And I watched the movie twice, right? Because I was really interested in trying to figure out kind of what happens, right? Like really mm -hmm. put a story to this film, which is a weird thing to say because, you know, films have stories and stuff, but this movie is very ambiguous, very non-linear. So I was like, all right, I'm going to try to figure out who this is, what they mean, what they stand for. It was like being a detective, you know? It was, it was really cool. And I think I have sort of an interpretation. Granted, there are some holes in it probably, but... I loved watching it, dude. Like even even not talking about the story, but just stylistically, it's a very strange film. Yeah, it's a style of filmmaking that you don't see often and it's done really well. And I'm like, oh, well, this is great. I'm I'm loving this. Same. Like there's a there's a thing about these movies, David Lynch movies, that if anybody else did them, I probably wouldn't like them. But something about the way he does it way these movies feel i'm just a hundred percent on board i'm s smiling as i'm watching it you know lynch has this like weird interpretation of like soap opera-esque kind of visuals and yeah <laughs> and line readings and stuff which if another filmmaker had done it you'd be like oh that what is this but he infuses his films with in that style so completely that it's just the way it is but there's also moments where he gets really dark and you're like yeah oh this is intentional like this is this movie's not afraid to get dark it doesn't have that it has a soap opera aesthetic but it's not a soap opera it's just mm -hmm. it's used so when the dark moments come in it hits even harder yeah and when it the movie does get serious you can't help but just be with the film so completely. I mean, El, uh, Club El Silencio is mm -hmm. that moment, you know, at least for me. Um, and towards the, the third act of this film, it, it drops being a soap opera. And or I'm not I'm, I'm, I'm saying soap opera very loosely. People, Yeah, though. it's there's there are parts that feel very melodramatic and yes. feels like this. This seems like overacted, maybe. Yeah. When I say soap opera, I'm talking about a stylistic approach done very purposefully not yes. something that's done on the cheap very quickly for daytime. It's not that. And I'm not talking about quality either. Even though I'm sure some soap operas are really good, they're not known to be Game of Thrones level quality. But this is very good writing. This is a very good film. So 
you know, just keep that in mind. Game of Thrones is kind of a soap opera. It just doesn't look like it. It totally is. It has it's, trails. It's a soap opera. <laughs> it is. It is. But it it has that aesthetic. You know, it has a very different aesthetic. You know, it's very grounded. It's, you know, brutal. The, you know, but it is a soap opera. David Lynch isn't afraid of going into that aesthetic of a soap opera. He's like, oh, no, this is what I'm doing it. But he does, he does it that with a lot. Purpose. He yeah, does. does that in Blue Velvet, does it in Twin, Twin Peaks. Peaks. But, but uh, and there's it's some... funny, in Twin Peaks, there's even a soap opera within the show that kind of parallels what's happening with the characters. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing, though. It Another filmmaker could come in and try to do that approach, and maybe it might not hit as well. But when David Lynch does it, it hits. And there are plenty yeah. of moments where it it's not a soap opera. It's... You know, mm-hmm. in Twin Peaks, the reveal, you know, um, of, you know, who killed Laura Palmer. Spoilers. I'm not going to say it, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's a very sad scene. This movie has those moments. Yeah, it, it takes you to this very familiar place, but there's something really off about it. So let's go over, like, the brief, a brief synopsis, briefer than we've ever done before, because... This movie is kind of weird, kind of up for interpretation. Can't stress that enough. So the movie starts with a limousine driving around Mulholland Drive. And then the drivers stop the car and the actress in the back, who I guess we will call Rita. She's like, what are you doing? We don't stop here. And then they pull a gun on her and they're like, get out of the car. And right before they get her out of the car, these two cars come driving super fast, super dangerously with a bunch of kids in them. They're just like living dangerously, having a good time. One of them crashes into the limousine and everybody dies, except for Rita, who seems to be suffering from a concussion. She's kind of lost. She doesn't know where, she's, where she is, but she sees the lights in L.A. And she kind of like walks down the canyon or whatever to this to the lights and she kind of passes out by this house and there she meets betty who's played by naomi watts and betty's like this just moved to la she wants to be an actress she's living in her established actress aunt's apartment or condo or whatever she's she sees that there's this woman there rita and she's like oh you must be a friend of my my aunt my aunt ruth what happened to you what's what's happening and then she finds out that Rita doesn't know who she is and she Betty offers to like help her find out who she is and by they kind of like become this mystery Scooby-Doo gang going (laughs) you know it's like they're pretending to be detectives Mm -hmm. it's very like it's played very innocently but they're in a way over their head because you know someone was trying to kill Rita Uh, in the meantime you have this director who's basically losing control of his film to these movie moguls that might be involved with the mob or something mm-hmm. who might have might have tried to get Rita killed. It's implied because they're that the movie that this guy's doing, they lost their main actress and we know that she was a brunette. Um, so he's being forced to take this other actress to be the main person in his movie his wife is cheating on him with Billy Ray Cyrus. <laughs> Billy Ray, I totally forgot he was in this. I love, I love that. He's so funny in this movie. He's great. Basically, his life is going to shit. He, all of his accounts get frozen. 
he's forced to take this woman to be his new lead, this actress, Camilla. As Betty is getting closer to finding out who Rita is, she has this audition, and she's so good at this audition, some people take her aside. They're like, you're too good for this shitty part. Let's go meet, let's go introduce you to this director who knows who's going to be like the next big guy. And it's the director who's losing control of his film, Adam, and he sees her and it's like, he's like, yes, that's the girl I want to want to pick, but I can't because the mob's telling me to pick this Camilla girl. So he picks a Camilla girl, but before Betty can even let him make that decision, she's like, oh no, I promised my friend I have to go and help her with something. So she goes back to Rita and they, Rita has remembered the name or something of her, maybe her roommate. So they go check that out, but they find a dead body and they like leave in a rush and they're like traumatized and they end up making out. And Betty says, I'm in love with you, Rita. And then in the middle of the night, Rita wakes up and she's like, silencio. We need to go, we need to go to Club Silencio. So they go to this club and it's this really weird club where this guy is saying everything is an illusion. You hear music, but there's no band. And you hear some guy playing the trombone and he stops playing the trombone, but you still hear the trombone. And then uh, this woman comes out and she sings this song. And Betty and Rita are moved by this. And... Um, Betty discovers this box and earlier on in the film Rita Rita has this bag of money and a key and she buries it in this hat box so they go back to the apartment and Rita suddenly Betty's just missing and Rita opens the hat box and she takes the, the key that was in there and opens the box that they found at Club Silencio and then everything changes suddenly Betty is no longer Betty. Her name is Diane. Rita, she her real name is Camilla. And it appears that Camilla was a successful actress and Betty was very jealous of her. And they were also lovers, but she leaves her for the director, Adam. And it's implied that Betty was so jealous of Camilla's success that she hired a hitman to kill her. And then through the from the guilt, she kills herself, and the movie ends. That's about as brief as I can make no, it. No, no, no. I think it was a good... I think you I think you did a good job. Because this movie's loaded. This movie's two and a half hours. Uh, and there's a lot that happens. There's a lot of characters, a lot, a lot of little side quests. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot and, of side quests that seem like they don't have anything to do with the main movie. But... But then they do. I Yeah, I think it's up to the audience to make them make sense yes and the beautiful thing is this movie kind of touches on a lot of different things and it is you're when you're watching this movie you know you kind of want to try to put the pieces together and you're like oh well, how is this gonna come in and how's this gonna and that was that's one of the joys of re-watching this film it's like all right so i kind of mm -hmm. know what's gonna happen and you know let's try to figure this out um I don't know, where do you want to where do you want to go? With yeah, it's hard to like pick a place to start to talk yeah. about this movie because there's Cause, just so much. There's characters that are in the story that I didn't even mention that I I think are very interesting. You didn't talk about the cowboy. 
the cowboy. The cowboy. You um you mentioned Billy Ray Cyrus. You talked about the <laughs> the movie guys, but you, you didn't even mention Mr. Rourke. Um, Mr. Rourke, Mr. The, Rourke, who plays the arm from Twin Peaks. Well, no, isn't he the uh, the man from the uh, the man from the other other yeah. world or the other place? But he's also the arm. He's got different names. Oh. The little man. <laughs> yeah. There's an ominous feeling throughout the film, and you go through a lot of tones as well. This is a this is a strange movie, guys. I don't know how much we can reiterate that, but this is probably our strangest film that we've done on the podcast. I can't think it, of a stranger like, one. It's like good strange though. No, no, it you is. Know, it just makes you feel so uneasy. Like for example, the moment when Betty arrives in the movie, like the yes. music that plays is so like hopeful and cheerful and. You can see she's so excited to be in, in L.A. Like she looks up at the sign at the airport. It says Los Angeles. And she has this like huge smile on her face. And she's like ho- walking arm in arm with this older woman who you assume is her grandmother. But mm-hmm. then when they get into the cab, it's like, oh, she just met this woman. She's like, thanks. Thanks. It was a pleasure meeting you, Irene. And like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> well, the film's already kind of messing with your. The film's already messing with your expectations. You're like, oh, okay. Um, I thought it was like her parents or something. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know. Parents, someone related. It's like, oh, I just met you on the yeah. plane, and you're like, oh, look at this sweet old couple. And then we cut to the inside the limousine, and they just look fucking maniacal. Yeah, there, because so she she gets in her cab. And then she tells the cab driver the address, like just the way that she has that line delivery is just so, oh my God. <laughs> well, it's so full of hope and yeah. Like- and then it cuts to the old couple who are in their cab and they're just smiling, but it looks like they've been, they've been on that like Joker gas. Their, <laughs> their smiles are so wide and they look at each other and don't say anything. Yeah. It's awful. And you're already like kind of okay. Well, you're already kind of thrown off because the movie begins with like this um, badly like green screen like uh, montage of couples dancing, right? Oh yeah, that's right. And it starts off like that, (laughs) big band music. It's just like, huh? Okay, Um, interesting way to start the film. And then you get this uh, this shot, a POV of someone getting into bed. And you could hear the breathing and like, you know, and then you hear the, 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 the snorting of cocaine. And so and then it just opens up with this you, car accident. You also see it's hard to see, but you see Naomi Watts with the two old people. They're like on a stage being um, blasted by this like super bright white light. Yeah. Which may or not be the two clues that we're supposed to get from. I the think movie. it is. Well, okay. I, I think I think it is. I think both. I think the two. So, really quickly to reiterate, Austin found that in the DVD cover, the DVD special edition of the film, there were like 10, there was a list of 10 things that David Lynch said you should look out for in the film. Um, That paying attention to these things might lead to a better understanding of the story. I had that list. It kind of helped, but not really. Yeah. <laughs> like very rarely. Because what happened was I'd look at the list. I was like, wait, oh, fuck did i miss a lampshade oh god damn it well i yeah, don't want to rewind I, yeah exactly <laughs> and that's i would just get invested in the film and i'd be like oh shit mm-hmm. what was i supposed to look for the coffee cup god damn it i don't i i don't know 
Sometimes but, I, I feel like the 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 hints were kind of written in a way that were like, what the fuck does this mean? Yeah. Like, who gives a key and why? There's several keys given in this movie. I'm not really yeah. sure which Coco, one. Coco, <laughs> the assassin. It's And the but, one in the hat box, too. Oh, yeah. But, you know, this movie is already, even when it begins, it throws you off kilter. And it's like throwing yeah. you for a loop. Because you start off with this really cheesy jitterbug kind of contest thing <laughs> and then you go to this pov shot of someone getting into bed um and then you go to a car accident and then you go to this super cheesy scene of this woman arriving in la in the cheesiest kind of like i'm here i'm gonna mm-hmm. make it big it's something <laughs> that like even in 30 rock they had a joke about that there's like this young bright-eyed girl who gets off the bus and she's like one bus one t- or something like that it's and fucking ju- la la land exactly la la land did that sincerely <laughs> yeah yeah no no la la land did that sincerely 30 rock was making fun of it this movie does it very kind of tongue-in-cheek yes um and from there it's just a trip where the movie will break uh from scenes with betty and it'll go to like boardroom meetings of characters that haven't been properly introduced and you're just like thrown in the middle of it mm-hmm. and the conversations are very cryptic and you're like what's the purpose of this like the scene where they're telling the scene where they're telling adam that he can't cast the woman he wants that he has to cast camilla the two yeah. guys yeah they're very mobbish this is a girl <laughs> what girl adam we're just trying to let you know that like his manager's yeah. just trying to like him <laughs> into it and what's so weird though is there's so many moments in this film where it just kind of like branches off into like a mini story and it's like what was the purpose of that mm-hmm. and there may not be there may be. I, I think there is in, in all these like weird things that happen. I think they they are. I think because they are too. It just in the moment, it feels like nothing's happening. Yes. Like in the in moment, board- it's like, what the fuck? In that in that boardroom where he's like, I think you're going to love this espresso machine. And then the mobster kind of like drinks it. And he just like spits it out in the napkin. <laughs> yeah. And the execs look heartbroken. They're just like, oh. But the thing is, we've. You've been around people like that, right? Because we both have a history of working in the industry and there are people that act like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is I mean, that's what the movie's about, right? It's about the Hollywood. It's about the Hollywood industry and it's probably painted in not the best of lights, but it kind of and this movie is very surrealist. It's a surrealist neo noir film, but there are some things that hit really close. Like that, like how the execs and the mobsters behave. I mean, like Austin was saying, we behave. I mean, we saw people like that. I got chewed out by this exec. He chewed me out in front of an audience, a theater audience. For for something that you had no control over. I had no control. Uh, and, and the people that were under him were just like laughing. Yeah, they were laughing at me because uh, I was clearly nervous. I, like I'm an anxious guy already and they could see mm-hmm. that and they were getting a kick out of it. Uh, and my, our coworkers kind of Austin and I's coworkers just came over. He's like, Hey man, it's okay. Like he's an asshole. Like everybody knows it. I'm like, really? And even our supervisor kind of came up to me and told me a story about how he, that dude was an asshole to him. It's like, yeah, this is a known thing. These, these like, are like children. <laughs> they yeah. Them, but, and I'm like, but they're, they have like six figure salaries and they make movies. Yeah. And I couldn't help but just kind of go back to that memory memory while watching this film. And it's like, these people could be assholes. It's like a weird like scene, but it is very truthful. 
yes. in what it's depicting. Like you, you might watch it and be like, this is weird. What the hell is happening? Why does this guy have a golf club? But like, if you're in the industry, it, it kind of makes sense. <laughs> Motherfuckers play golf. Like that's what they do. <laughs> I feel like it's kind of like his, his thing, you know, like every director or Hollywood person like has a thing about David them, Lynch's you know? is to smoke. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Tim Burton has the big hair and everything. I Martin think Scorsese's the, got the, the glasses and the eyebrows. Like he could get different style eyeglasses, but then we wouldn't know it's Martin Scorsese. You know? exactly. <laughs> this movie is a dream. It's a surreal dream, but it, de- it depicts Hollywood in almost an exaggerated way, but it feels true. It feels honest. Mm-hmm. Like I guarantee you, like the whole thing with the, with the espresso, it's like, it doesn't matter how well you do. It's not going to be good enough for these guys. Nothing you do is going to be good enough for them because they're always going to see everyone else as beneath them. It's what it's like. It's not even, it, does, it has nothing to do with skill. It just comes down to just, did you get them in the right mood? And that's all yeah. it is. And <laughs> there's scenes like that. There's scenes like... Um, the audition scene. Oh, Yeah. And how the casting agents there, like, I'm here for support. And then once they walk out of the rooms, like, man, that film's gone fucking, that movie film sucks. It ain't never going to make shit. Wally ain't shit. Yeah. And, and even the, I feel like there's a little bit of uh, David Lynch kind of putting him his own experiences into the movie with him being a director and having control taken away from him by a studio. Right. Because oh, a- absolutely. Yes. The director, Adam, he he can't cast his recast the lead actress to whoever he wants. He has to do with with the the Castigliani oh. brothers. Yeah. It's not your film, though. It's not your film no more. <laughs> yeah. And then there's that director who's doing like this. It's, it seems like a bad movie that Rita is auditioning for, that Betty is auditioning for. But uh, the director is there and he wants he's. He's getting really bad notes, to be honest. He, <laughs> he seems like a very absent-minded director. Yeah, but he wants to feel... He, he talks like he's in control, but I think he knows that he's not. Because the, the actor there that's reading the scenes with Betty, he's kind of directing the scenes. Yeah, He's doing it the way he wants to do it. He's like, let's play it close, like I did with that one brunette. And oh, he's being man. really creepy. He's, he's an older guy clearly older than Naomi Watts than Betty's character but he's like the way he's touching her the way he's holding her just feels icky yeah and he's doing it because he wants to do it that way ignoring what the director says and the director even kind of checks out at some point too it seems like he's not paying attention yeah he's not paying attention (laughs) because he knows it's not his film anymore (laughs) There's one there's one other thing I wanted to mention before we get into theories is mm-hmm. um, the the living situation of yeah. of Betty in the first two hours of the movie. Betty's living in her Aunt Ruth's apartment, or Aunt Ruth's mm-hmm. condo or something. It's very nice, but it's kind of typical of a uh, Hollywood depiction of living in L.A. Mm-hmm. You know, you see all these sitcoms where they're living in these like enormous apartments and they don't want for anything. You know, they just have this money from their from whatever. It's just part of the script. Don't get into it. We, ne- we never really see how these uh, people moving to L.A. 
to be in the film industry, how hard they have to struggle, like how many times they have to like eat ramen for breakfast, lunch and dinner. You know, it's expensive living in L.A. Um, So then when the fantasy crashes, I think when we see the actual apartment that Betty slash Diane, Naomi Watts's character is living in, I feel like that's how my apartment looks, you know? Yeah. Because I I moved from the Bay Area to L.A. to make it in in the movie industry. And it's really hard. L.A. is a very expensive town. So I appreciated that part of of the movie. It feels more, I guess, realistic or relatable or authentic. It goes to what I think is one of the biggest themes of the film, which is dreams. It's using multiple meanings of the word dream. The film talks about dreams, what we experience when we go to sleep, right? Uh, Kind Mm -hmm. of what our subconscious minds go through when we're not awake. Talks about dreams in the aspirational sense. What do what am I dreaming for my life? Yes. Right? What the what can I dream for myself in the future? It talks about dreams in the Hollywood sense or like in the in the cultural consciousness of a certain thing, right? Like the the New York dream, the American dream, right? Isn't that what a lot of immigrants say? Like I want to be part of that American dream, mm-hmm. right? That's what my parents said when they when that's what my dad talks about. He's like, I'm living the American dream. And a lot of young people, it is to make it in Hollywood. So there's that Hollywood dream. Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. the film's talking about all these different aspects of dreams. And it talks about the beauty of them, but it doesn't shy away from the awful reality and how harmful those dreams could be. And when you're yeah. talking about that living situation. Yeah, her apartment, Aunt Ruth's apartment is beautiful. Everyone would l- want to live there. That's a place where actors live and directors and stuff like that. You know what I mean? But that her apartment in the latter half of the film, yeah, that's where most people live, you know? And it looks grungy by comparison. And that's kind of the film. That's 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 what the film is. For the first 2 hours you're kind of in this dream. You're in this you know fantasy land and in the last last third or quarter of the film it just slaps you in the face you know and it's like wake up literally literally hey pretty girl time to wake up and that facade of the soap opera breaks immediately Mm -hmm. there's even like the it didn't make sense to me until right now but there's that scene where you you see the director's movie adam kesher justin thoreau's character uh, you see the 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 movie as if um, you're watching that movie, and then as the camera pulls back, you see the entire facade that's been constructed to make this specific scene. Mm-hmm. It like literally pulls the curtain back and shows you this is how movies are made. Everything is fake. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and you see the people behind it and stuff, and mm-hmm. and I mean this in, this movie constantly does that. I mean, this movie will ruin the facade. Of this movie constantly ruins the facade that Hollywood puts up. I mean, okay, let's talk about that audition. And even thing, right? even the audition itself is fake. It's not really an audition. It's just placating the director. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, well, it you know she does really well in this audition. Then she gets told ah, it's a shit movie. It's not going to get made. 
facade ruined. You go to this audition where some people are, you know, dancing. They seem like they're in the set of a 50s movie or something. You see the facade of a set. The facade at Club El Silencio, right? L- the- they literally say, this is all an illusion. No, I banda. That's literally <laughs> what the guy says. And that tra- yeah. translates to there's no band. He says this multiple times, right? And he shows the trumpet player, trombone or trumpet. I don't know. One of brass, those tea. brass blowing instrument. <laughs> One of those T instruments. And he stops and the sound's still going. So this movie's letting you know, hey, this shit's not real. And then this woman goes up and she sings a cover of Roy Orbison's Crying in Spanish. Oh, and it's shit. That's what that song is. Couldn't tell. I'm just now, oh, I love that song. Oh, it's amazing. And this cover, though, is, in my opinion, better. I like this cover more. Mm -hmm. It's It's in Spanish. And this woman is performing her heart out. And you just can't help but be overwhelmed by the performance. And then right as the song's about to end, she, like, passes out or she collapses. But the music still goes. It's the facade. It's the facade that Hollywood is constantly putting in front of itself. It's saying, believe this, even though we know it's all fake, right? I mean, look, look well, come on, man. We, especially nowadays, everyone's aware about the bullshit that happens behind Hollywood. Like, mm-hmm. come on, man. Harvey Weinstein, fucking uh, workers pay right now because of the IATSE. Mm-hmm. Like, we, it's all out there. We know this, but we still buy into it. We're still, we're still trying to do it. <laughs> we buy it. We know, we know that Disney's out here to make money and stuff. But God damn it, when Captain America picks up Mjolnir, we can't help but just like, oh my goodness, you know, like it's, yeah. it's a wonderful experience. <laughs> and this movie is just breaking down that Hollywood facade, one scene at a time, constantly. Hell, even the scene with the assassin where he shoots, <laughs> where he, where he, where he shoots the guy making it seem like a suicide and you you know because it's a film right you imagine yeah. that the assassin will do cool assassin shit nope he fucks up the assassination by accidentally pulling the trigger he he shoots at the wall hits someone on the other side who thinks that somebody bit something bit her oh yeah <laughs> something something bit me in the ass and then he tries killing her fails at first because she's beating him up and then as he's trying to kill her a janitor sees it happening, and it is the dumbest fucking assassination <laughs> I've ever seen. But it just it, gets even worse and worse as, as time goes on. Yeah, man. Oh. It, this movie doesn't even do an assassination scene right. And on purpose, on purpose, it's not on accident. It's very much, that's the joke. That's This movie uh-huh. is constantly subverting your expectations of what a Hollywood film and film is and does. You have this plan, and everything's going to go smoothly. Nothing ever goes smoothly. <laughs> We're talking about the assassination scene, but let's talk about Betty or um, or uh, Diane. My general understanding or how I'm rationalizing the film, and I'm not able to explain everything, but the way I realize it is the bulk of the film is a dream. Yes. Austin mentioned that there's a POV shot. In the first part, you mentioned that there's a POV and it goes into a bed. Yeah. 
that's a literal shot of someone going to bed. I believe that shot to be Naomi Watts' character, Diane. I think the bulk of the film is a dream. I think what happened chronologically is she she goes to Hollywood. She tries to make it as an actress. And it's it's hard. You know, she's getting some gigs here and there. She meets with Camilla, played by Laura Herring, who in the dream world we know as Rita. And Diane, you know, has feelings for Camilla. And, you know, they 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 begin a relationship. But Camilla becomes more successful. And Camilla's getting these big parts in these big movies. And Diane, Naomi Watts, can't help but be jealous. They go to a dinner party and it's just awful. Like everyone there is kind of snotty. Um, They're kind of rubbing it in her face. You know, she's like, yeah, she's kind of telling a depressing story about how some casting director didn't didn't buy her. She lost the movie part. And then Adam is there with Camilla. Camilla and Adam are like a thing. And then right when they're announced that they're going to get married, which that's what I think it is, that they're going to announce that they're yeah, getting married. They, it's so like drawn out. Camilla and I are. <laughs> <laughs> they're like laughing. <laughs> are going to yeah. be. And then, you know, a quick it cuts to Diane in, a, in, in Winkies, right? The diner from earlier in the film. She meets up with the assassin. And she's like, this is the girl. And it's a headshot of Camilla. <laughs> and you kind of get girl. the assumption that, oh, she's asking this assassin to kill her. And, and he, we know that's an assassin because of that, like, comedy assassin scene that we saw earlier. From earlier, the one where it's, ah, something bit me in the ass hard. <laughs> um, but here, but here, the assassin's like, once, once you take this key, it's happening. Camilla's going to die. After it's done, after it's done, you'll find the key where I left it. And that means that Camilla is super dead. Mm-hmm. Kill confirmed. She sees the key and she's kind of feeling a bit, um, she's feeling guilty a lot. And that's when she stays in her apartment. She stays in that apartment for three weeks, right? Because earlier, earlier in the film, Rita and Betty went there and their neighbor was like, oh yeah, I switched apartments with that other chick. She's been in there for three weeks. So I'm guessing that that's what happened to Diane, to Naomi Watts' character. Mm-hmm. And she was just stewing in her guilt. Well, her guilt eventually leads her to killing herself. At some point, in maybe the three weeks or right before she dies, she has this wild dream where nothing went wrong, right? Mm-hmm. She came into Hollywood and she already, she had a place that was way better than her real life place. You know, this is this is a fucking delicious apartment right she finds this amnesiatic woman who is camilla in real life but in in the world she doesn't know who she is and they call her rita who's just so dependent on her so so dependent bro and she's like i'll help you out it's gonna be fun it's like we're characters we're detectives and this woman can't help but be at the mercy of Betty, because she doesn't know who she is. Yeah, Betty's the, the main character. She's the one that's driving everything forward with this pretend investigation. Yeah, remember, Diane is the real-life character. Betty is who she made up in the dream. And Betty's got it all. Apartment. A woman that's dependent on her. She gets an audition at the, at one of the big studios and she nails it. She gets the part, but oh, that part ain't shit. You're going to meet the real guy. And Adam, 
she meets Adam and Adam is head over heels with her. It's that it's that pushing, you know, that dot that dolly. Yeah. Where it's love at first sight. But even this movie isn't that great, you know, because she's got shit to do, you know? Yeah, she chooses to help Rita over be in this movie. Exactly. And in this dream, everything is going well. Like, nothing can go wrong. But it, it does, though, doesn't it? It does. Because at Club El Silencio, the facade breaks. She finds the cube, the blue cube. Where the key, they had, they found the key earlier in the film, in that dream. Earlier in the dream, they find this blue key that they don't know what opens up at Club Silencio. They find the blocks, and that's where the dream starts collapsing. You can't help but feel this mournfulness, like the death of someone, or the loss of beauty. You know, the dream itself is, is breaking, and mm-hmm. then Betty disappears. You don't know what happened to her. And it's like a weird... Did the dream happen and then real life and then back into the dream? Who knows? But that's kind of my interpretation. Yeah. Um, um, it's pretty much mine is is pretty much the same. Um, for me, I thought that that thing in the beginning was like Betty's like most desperate dream. You know, like she wanted to be recognized for her talent and for her grandparents to be beside her. I think those old people are her grandparents. Mm. This is like her deepest desire to be like loved for her, her dream coming true, but she doesn't, you know, this is her, what she actually did was she got jealous of her more successful former lover so much so that she used the money that was left to her from her dead aunt in an inheritance to have her killed by a hitman. The mo- the dream is kind of like fixing everything that wasn't yes. able to be fixed in real life. For example, the audition. So I mentioned Bob Booker, right? So the audition that she has in the dream where everything goes well, everyone's like, wow, you're incredible. The director in that dream, his name is Bob Booker, right? Mm-hmm. This happens This happens kind of early in the film. At the very end, the real life aspect of the movie, what I'm calling the real life aspect, right? Mm-hmm. Um. At, at Adam's house, when they're having that dinner, right before Adam announces his uh, marriage to Camilla, she's talking about a movie that she auditioned for. The yes. movie was called The Sylvia North Story. Yes. That movie we- comes up in the dream. She, she, has, she dreams up of the audition for that film. That's where Adam sees her, and that's where that's that, first, that love at first sight kind of stare. You know? <gasps> uh, Camilla, Camilla and... Diane were auditioning for the same part, but Camilla got the role. In real life. In real life, yeah. And in real life, she begins a relationship with Adam. And that's that eventually leads to uh their marriage. But we we hear that name, Bob Booker, at the at the audition, and when she mentions it at the very end, it's like, oh. So in real life, Bob Booker saw her audition but didn't pick her. He picked Camilla. But in the dream, in in Diane's dream, in Naomi Watts' dream, Bob Booker was the idiot director, the one who couldn't uh, appreciate her brilliant performance and whose film was shit, was destined (laughs) to be shit. It wasn't even destined to be made. 
Yeah. And oh man, you're a small time. And that's when she meets Adam, the real director. And Adam's the one that falls in love with with uh Diane, with Naomi Watts. He doesn't know he doesn't want to deal with Camilla Rose because remember, Camilla Rhodes is the woman that was forced on Adam by the mafia. Yeah, they so were they, like, they changed the name. Like Rita is is Camilla, right? In real yes. life. But in the dream world, Camilla is the girl that the mob is forcing Adam to pick. It's almost like Diane's Diane's subconsciously saying, Camilla didn't get it because she was talented. Exactly. She got it because the system is designed against me and and she got in because she was lucky. There there had to be some kind of conspiracy against me for her to get the part over me. Featuring a cowboy and a <laughs> rourke and mafia guys. It it's not because I'm not ta- I'm talentless. It's not because of my talent. It's because of them. Yeah, there's, you there's know? also this scene where Neo uh Betty is auditioning and Rita is like reading the scenes of the the actor she's supposed to be with. She's like <gasps> filling right. in. And Rita is really, really bad at reading the lines. So much so that Betty starts to laugh and they all have like a good laugh about how bad she is at at acting. <laughs> Rita is super bad in that uh, in that reading. Like very like purposely. Yes. Like I could do a better reading. It's like, oh no. Don't tell your father I'm here. But then you'll be because... in jail. <gasps> it's so bad. And when you're watching the film, it's like, oh, this is weird. But no, at the end, we find out Camilla is the, the actress, the one that got the part, who's with the director. And it just makes sense. You're like, oh, shit. This dream is a manifestation of everything Diane wanted, that dream mm-hmm. that she wanted, and she got it. Maybe right before she died, after she died, or when she was mourning the death of Camilla. Who the fuck knows? I don't know. But at some point, she had this dream of, I wish the assassin was incompetent. Oh, you think so? I think so, right? Like, I think that's in the dream. She has, you know, she that's oh. why she thinks of this weird scenario with the assassin. He's so incompetent. That he couldn't have killed Camilla. After he does kill all three people, he goes to Winkies and he talks to this woman, I think this prostitute. He can't find the brunette. He yeah. can't find Camilla. She escaped and he, somehow. And she and he never does. The next time we see the assassin is at the very end when he's meeting Diane, where Diane says, I want you to kill Camilla. That makes sense. In this manifestation, she wants the assassin to be incompetent. She wants Bob Booker to be an idiot director who's on a piece of shit film. She wants Adam lusting over her. Because that means she could get the part. And then she becomes the the better person for sticking with Rita. Yeah. Because part of part of uh Betty's like jealousy and envy of of Camilla isn't just that she became the big actress. I think Betty or Diane actually loves Camilla. Like she fell in love with her. Yeah. And now it, oh. it feels like she's picking him over her. I shouldn't do this anymore. Don't say that. Don't ever say that. Don't, Diane. Stop it. Diane, stop. 
tried to tell you this before. It's him, isn't it? Dude, a hundred percent. I bought and that's one thing we have to talk about. The relationship between Naomi Watts and Laura Herring, between Camilla and Diane. It's very beautiful in that last in that in that last part, or the moments that are supposed to be, you know. Um Do you think that maybe Diane felt that Camilla may have been ashamed or trying to hide their romance at all? That that's definitely a possibility. I mean, look, man, you mentioned it in the first part that when Laura Dern played Ellen DeGeneres's partner in her in her sitcom, that Laura Dern wasn't getting that many parts. She wasn't offered as many roles as she was before. I think it's a known fact that if you I mean, that's why a lot of actors haven't come out. Because if you're a gay mm. actor, it could hinder your, or it could have hindered your your career. I mean, it, yeah. I'm not saying that it can't Just now. Look at Rudy Rudy Valentino. I think people suspected that he was gay, but he was always like, you know, the the heartthrob that women bought tickets to see, or women would yeah. go see see him in movies. And if you if he if he came out, then that it ruined the facade. Yeah, uh, what's his name? I think Rock Hudson was it. No, I don't know. I don't know who that is. Oh, it's it's a super sad story. Just look, Rock Hudson was this actor who contracted HIV, and he needed some treatment in France um, to maybe help him. But he needed approval from the American government, which he and he was friends with the Reagans before. But they were like, we can't show favoritism, so you can't. We're not going to help you. You know why they didn't help. Yeah, and they it, didn't even look, acknowledge a HIV or AIDS was a thing until several years deep into the epidemic. That's the world that, that gay people have known forever. Mm -hmm. There is that aspect where I'm like, yeah, I could definitely see Camilla hiding her sexuality because if she came out as gay, I mean, or even as bisexual, would Adam see her the same way? Would her peers, would his peers, would the studio execs? No, hell no. No, they would not. Mm. So there's I I could see that. The thing that makes me think about it is when um Diane is in the limousine and they're going up Mulholland Drive, which is where Rita was in the car accident where she was almost assassinated. In the the car stops and Diane is escorted up a secret path, you know, with oh. with Camilla. And I'm like is this a secret so that they can like hold hands? Do they stop holding hands when they get up to the party? I didn't notice that. It doesn't really show them holding hands after they get there because she's sitting next to Adam. But then there's mm -hmm. that scene, that shot where Camilla is approached by another actress, I guess, who becomes Camilla in the dream world. And they, yeah. they share like a really passionate kiss. And I'm like... Okay, was that was that really happening or was that like some kind of projection of Diane's um instability and insecurity? They're like, "Oh, she's she's fucking this other girl, she's fucking this guy. They're getting married. She's just throwing this all in my face." I don't know if Camilla is that cold-hearted. You know? I mean, I feel like some parts in the real world are kind of projections of Diane to show us her her uh, kind of show her side. 
I mean, and and that would make sense. The movie's perspective is very much on Diane. Mm-hmm. You could make the case that it's for other characters. I don't think so. I think it's Diane. Maybe she, maybe she is being selective. I mean, that's the thing, man. We we do this all the time too, right? It's it's like that Key and Peel sketch, the texting one. Where oh yes, you, yes. You think, <laughs> you think the conversation is going a certain way, but the other person's reading it differently. Yeah. Maybe Camilla, that maybe maybe Camilla broke up with her. For whatever reason, right? Doesn't matter. And she was just trying to help Betty out or uh, uh, Diane as much as she could. Mm-hmm. But maybe she fell in love with Adam, and Diane is warping everything in her head. Or maybe Camilla is just kind of enjoying this, and maybe she likes torturing Diane. I, who know, who the case could be made for either scenario. Mm. The film isn't very explicit. I, I does, would argue that it's. Well, I feel like it's not. I feel like some of that is a projection of, of Diane's character. I do think that there is a sinister vibe at the end that makes me believe that Camilla is a bit cold-hearted. Mm. I wouldn't go so far as to say that she's like, you know, a villain, but I think she might have some ulterior motives, because. That line that Adam has where, where, you know, he's going to announce them getting married, right? It seems so, like, it doesn't seem romantic. It doesn't seem genuine. It seems like, ha ha, watch this, you poor bitch. And it, he's looking at Diane, and I'm like, that's the kind of vibe I got. Mm. It wasn't like, oh my god. I'm the luckiest guy to have Camilla. She's beautiful. She's talented. I love you. And I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with you. That's not the vibe. Mm-hmm. It's very much like, ha, 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 You know like how rich people laugh? Yeah. Ha, 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 ha. See, the thing is, that- I, I think it's all from Diane's perspective. And the way that they walk up the, the secret path, it feels like um, Camilla is just like the most beautiful powerful woman in the universe the way she comes down from the shadows it feels dreamlike the way that the camera moves it feels dreamlike this isn't how camilla's walking i think this is how diane sees camilla so then when we get to the the party she feels all the anxiety of being in this party where she doesn't know anybody and she feels like she doesn't really belong there even the, the way people look at it they're like why are you here I don't think Coco. Yeah. Coco looks at it that way. The, the blonde guy sitting next to Naomi Watts looks yeah. at it that way. I don't think that they actually look that way towards her. I think that that's just how she feels. And we're seeing her perspective because you've been to L.A. parties where you don't know anybody. They don't they're not that awkward. You know, yeah, some of them can be awkward. <laughs> it feels awkward because you're seeing it from your perspective. But I think some of that is social anxiety where I will go to a party and I feel like I don't belong here. I, I well, know what, that's part of, that's, I guess it's hard to say because I can only see things from my perspective and I know I have some kind of social anxiety. Same here. And I think you, you are right about that. I think I'm mean, even in romantic films, right? Um, you'll have a character that will like kind of see things a certain way and then they'll take a supporting character. It's like, ah, that's not how it went. You know, I mean, one of my favorite films that does this is 500 Days of Summer, where everyone's kind of telling Tom, ah, you get, don't get ahead of yourself. You need to relax. She didn't say it that way. 
And then, mm-hmm. but in his head, he has all these expectations of Summer just being this fabulous girl who is top of the world, perfect girl for him, yada, 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 right? In romance, people are very selective about what they think. Mm-hmm. And I think in romance, you will perpetuate the positive. You could also perpetuate the negative yes. side of a certain person. And I think that's what this movie deals with. It's the negative side of it. And you have someone who is stewing in their own shit. I mean, I can't phrase it any better. Diane is basically dunking on herself at the end. Yes. Like at that party, she's dunking on she's dunking on herself like I didn't get this part. Camilla got it. Yeah, I won this little thing. Uh, you know. Well, how did you meet Camilla? On the Sylvia North story. Well, Camilla was great in that. Yo nunca fui a Casablanca con Luigi. Yeah. I wanted the lead so bad. Anyway, Camilla got the part. The director. Bob Brooker? Yes. He didn't think so much of me. Anyway, that's when we became friends. She helped me getting some parts in some of her films. I see. She sees herself as not being worthy at this table, but Camilla is, and everybody romanticizes Camilla. It totally could be just her playing up the scenario where Camilla's just, you know, being Camilla. She's not doing anything. Mm, I think Camilla is very, she has like very sensual energy about her. Very erotic. Yes. Uh, and I think maybe she'll use it to her advantage. I feel like she, her feelings for Diana were uh, genuine. Yes, but I agree she, with that. She moved on from it, but Diane wasn't ready for to let her go no she wasn't and it's heartbreaking dude it really is there's that scene um it's a scene that you've seen in other movies that are that's played for laughs but here it's kind of heartbreaking it's the scene where naomi watts's character is masturbating mm-hmm. right and she's crying yeah she like it, she's masturbating she's crying while she's masturbating and it's so tragic and i've seen this play in other films i feel like forgetting sarah marshall not another teen movie <laughs> not, yeah exactly right where it's played for laughs but here it's really somber and depressing and you're like fuck this was this was a real romance that just died and and someone wasn't ready to let it go diane was not ready man she took it hard and it, yeah I, I mean, I, I genuinely, and the thing is, that scene is, you can't, you take that scene and compare it to like the kind of their mini sex scene, right? Where, yeah, uh, it's very Diane, erotic, very sensual, very romantic and passionate. Well, actually compare it to the two sex scenes that they do have, because they have one in, from what I'm, what I'm guessing, Diane's dream at where she's yeah. Betty. And where she's she has like, have you ever Rita. done this before? And she's like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, what did she say? I want to, I want. I want to do it with you. Mm-hmm. You're right. She says something along the lines of, have, have you ever done this before? I want to do it with you. 
that's the first one. And the second one is in the real life in the not as great apartment. And yeah, man, like, like, it's not just a sexual thing. Like, it's definitely an emotional thing. You know what I mean? It, I and, think that the way that scene ends, though, the second one where, where um, Diane is on top of Camilla, she, Camilla says, we shouldn't do this anymore. And then she's like, what are you talking about? And she's like, I tried to tell you before, we shouldn't do this anymore. And it abruptly cuts. Yeah. And you you know what that scene reminded me of a little bit? Those few lines kind of reminded me of the script that Betty reads at the audition. Exactly, dude. The scene where Betty's auditioning for like that cheesy, shitty movie that is never going to get made. Betty's character is having an affair with her father's friend. And his the father's friend is very pushy. He's like, come on, let's bang. And she's like, no, I'm going to tell my dad. And he's like, no, you won't. And then she threatens to kill him. And then she's he's like, well, we'll both be in jail or then you'll I'll be dead and you'll be in jail. And she's like, I don't care. It's it's dumb. That's basically the scene, right? It's dumb. But but notice how that how that script ends. Mm -hmm. I'll kill you. And the way it starts off is not that different from the conversation when when uh, Diane is on top of, of Camilla. It kind of, it, I mean, it's not line for line the same, but it kind of has the same energy. We shouldn't do this. What What do you mean? And in that script, in the dream, she says, I'll kill you. What does Diane do? Who does she go to once Camilla breaks things off? She goes to the assassin. That yep. script is kind of a weird, it's a weird way of, of Diane processing the conversation that she had where Camilla says that they need to stop seeing mm -hmm. each other. Of the actual breakup. And in that that fake movie, that their relationship is something that they have to hide. That's a secret. Oh, my God. <laughs> I didn't. So fucking obvious. And I didn't even see it. Yes. Oh, my God. You're God. You're right. They have to keep that relationship a secret because obviously her father's best friend. Mm -hmm. But in real life, because they're gay. Yo. To be yeah. honest, I, th I thought of. um the, the end of that scene and I'm like oh that's what she does to Camilla but it wasn't until you said it where I was like oh shit it lines up more than I thought <laughs> it, it lines up the exact same thing here I was just like oh my god they have to keep it a secret shit so it's it's this you know even it, she has to even in her dream the conversation that kind of begins the collapse of her relationship is is you know like a positive thing. Do you know what I mean? Like even that thing is like twisted mm -hmm. and it's, and Diane's subconscious kind of manipulates it to fit this narrative of her dream, her dream to be a great actress. Yeah. Um, even like this, this dream, all these like fantasy things that are happening are revealing of the truth. You know, there's truth in, wasn't that in um, Velvet Goldmine? Like listen to a man lie and he'll tell the truth. The Oscar oh, Wilde yeah. quote. That's yeah. that's very true. That's why, like, this movie can. It's a, the first half is a dream, but that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. Exactly, and I I was a little knowing, kind of figuring this thing, this kind of working this theory in. It was like, you know, it was all a dream, but where that might be a hindrance for other films, it's not for this one because the dream is still full of 
information and it's full of emotion. And if you put the pieces together, it's really sad. And it mm-hmm. all incorporates to what happened in real life in that last 20 minutes or so. What are what are dreams but the truth persevering? Oh, the fuck is that from? I just co-opted that line from WandaVision. Oh, what is it? No, no, it's love. What is, what is love? What is grief but love persevering? Yeah, yeah. I was like, that sounds familiar. Where'd you get it from? <laughs> yeah, I like changed it. It's a, it's a collaboration. I'll, yeah. I'll take partial credit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, it's just... This movie's fucking amazing. This movie's fucking loaded. And we haven't even talked about the fucking cowboy who is the creepiest <laughs> aspect of this film. I love the cowboy. We haven't even talked about the blue haired woman at Club El Silencio. Mm-hmm. Uh which I which I, I have nothing for that theory. I don't know who she is. Um uh I do kind of maybe have an idea as to what the cowboy stands for. Okay, what do you think the cowboy stands for? Uh, I don't think we talked I, about the cowboy enough in, to give context no, we for didn't. the listeners. No, no. Do you want me to give context? Yes, go ahead. Okay. So, the mobsters go to Adam and they're like, you have to cast Camilla Rhodes. Uh, Adam doesn't want to. He declines. Um, And then weird shit, his life starts collapsing. Like, his wife doesn't want him anymore. His credit cards are deactivated. His money's gone. Right. Even though he has money and his assistant says, hey, so there's this guy who's who's a cowboy. He wants you to meet him up. He wants you to meet him at this like ranch or whatever. I forgot the word. And he's like Hollywood Hills. What the hell? A cowboy? (laughs) Yeah. And he goes up to this ranch, meets the cowboy and the cowboy has. You're going to have to put a clip of how he talks. But it is very like man's attitude man's attitude goes some ways the way his life will be is that something you might agree with sure now did you answer because that's what you thought i wanted to hear or did you think about what i said and answer because you truly believe that to be right i agree with what you said truly what i say <laughs> Dude, I, I, no other movie makes me like so uncomfortable but makes me fucking yes. laugh like this except for david lynch stuff it creeped me the fuck out and especially when he calls him out it's on the shit so why don't you stop being a smart aleck and i was like is he gonna beat you or what and i was like <laughs> oh gonna- fuck i want you to go to that audition and i want you to say this is the girl and he he doesn't have any eyebrows either. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, he. I, I've been noticing these eyebrow things even more. I don't know <laughs> if we talked about it if it made in the final cut of Drive, but Albert Brooks's character doesn't have eyebrows, and the reason he did that was to appear a bit more emotionless. Mm-hmm. I totally felt that in this movie because yeah. that cowboy shows no emotion. Yeah, emotions. he he gives like the the most vague threat, like if you do good, you'll only see me once. But if you do bad, you'll see me two more times. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking? What? 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 Huh? And then, like, it's funny because the, the ranch is completely dark. Right? But in, when the cowboy walks up to Adam, the lights come on. And then when the cowboy leaves, the lights go off. So, like, those aren't motion lights. There's something supernatural about this cowboy here. <laughs> yes. I have... 
two suspicions as to what the cowboy are cowboy is. Um, my first one was, I mean, they're kind of the same, but the first one was like, he is supposed to be this evil entity, mm-hmm. right? Cause David Lynch likes having these like villainous entities that aren't really personified. They're more, or they, they, they don't are have like a human origin. They're like otherworldly. Otherworldly. Like the, the guy from Twin Peaks. What's his, um, Bob. his fucking name? Bob, right? Bob, we see Bob as a person, but Bob is more, much more than that. Yeah. Bob is a demonic presence, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we see it in Blue Velvet. Um, and we see that here. And that's kind of how I imagine the cowboy being just this demonic presence, this all threatening um person this evil monster that's lurking underneath hollywood that's just has no you can't reason with him you can't understand it but he'll fuck you up it's kind of how that was my first interpretation of it mm-hmm. the second one is a bit more grounded and i think the cowboy kind of represents the randomness of the hollywood system I'm, the, I'm more in line with, with that idea, I think. He, I think it's like the randomness, th- this collection of Hollywood ideas and history and yeah. just the way it is. I, I like, exactly. Exa- that's what I was going to say. I'm like, it is this way because that's the way it is. Like, for me personally, I think the cowboy kind of represents that idea of Hollywood. And I think he's like the final boss of this dream world because this is uh, Diane's dream and she wants to be in movies and kind of like the, the most cinematic character. I think something that got movies made was this mythic cowboy, you know, the John John Wayne, the great train robbery. Exactly. Yeah. The the great train robbery was one of the first films. Yeah. I, I mean, it was early on. Mm-hmm. You know, you there's this myth that people were scared when the train was going to come in and <laughs> break through the screen. I mean, people have had a fascination with cowboys forever. I mean, and the cowboys, cowboys, the way that we imagine them, purely the cinematic version. We don't really know what real cowboys did. Shit, I don't. Well, like, I mean, they're ranchers, right? But that when people think of cowboys, they think of like this hero on the frontier, the six shooter. He is the bounty hunter. He is the sheriff. He is the rancher. There's no identity to him. I mean, the man with no name. Yeah. You know, Clint Eastwood. <laughs> yeah, just like this iconic image of cinema is the cowboy. And when we, I, I play a lot of Hunt Showdown, and the cowboys in that game, they're not based on, like, real cowboys. They're cowboys from movies. Yeah. It's... I think it's the exact same thing here. I think this is like the 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 spirit of Hollywood that won't die. Yeah. It's just the way it is. Why do we have to cast Camilla Rhodes? Um I mean, like, realistically, why did they cast Camilla? We don't know. It could have been that Camilla was having an affair, maybe um Camilla just knew the right person, the new right casting or maybe she was talented. A lot of reasons. Maybe she but, had a famous last name. Maybe. But in this dream logic, in this dream world, why did Camilla get it? It's just that's how Hollywood wants it. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter about the, your talent. Doesn't matter who you know, what you know. If this spirit wants you, you will. This is what you will do. 
right? And in a weird way, I mean, we that kind of exists. I mean, uh, Hollywood's full of talented people. It's also full of not so talented people. And yet they cannot mm-hmm. seem to go away. Why is that? It's just the way it is. <laughs> in Hollywood, yes, you're going to have a lot of talented people. Uh, but there are a lot of talented people that tried to get into Hollywood. There's so many couldn't. talented people here. We know so many talented people. And they're not able to pitch the scripts that they want or act in the movies that they want because, well, just just the way it is. You know, <laughs> call it luck, call it uh, randomness, but you just didn't get it. It doesn't matter how talented you are. If you don't have that opportunity, it is not happening for you. And the end of the day, in the film, in the dream, it's the cowboy that decides, right? Yeah. But the cowboy is just this idea that's just been passed down since early, early cinema, mm-hmm. since the great robbery, the great train robbery, just ideas that have been forming. And it's like, well, it's, it is, it is, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of what he represents, at least to me. I don't know. I, that's what I think too. I think that's the, when you we started talking about the randomness, I'm like, what the fuck? And then I was like, oh, oh, no, I agree completely. I agree. I was just thinking John Wayne, mm-hmm. right? And I'm like, oh, like cowboys. I mean, yeah, man, they're synonymous with Hollywood. There's also like his threat, right? It comes true, but it's not because Adam does bad. It's because Diane did bad. You see the cowboy two more times. Yeah. Oh, he's like, wake up. What is that what he says? He, he says, wake up, pretty girl or, or something like that. <laughs> Yeah. And then we see him again at the party, just like walking, walking between the, the door frame. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a it's a wild film. It's funny because like when when you hear something like that in the movie, like you'll see me two more times if you do bad. The audience is going to look for this cowboy, you know. Yeah. So when we see him the second time, we're like, oh, that's two. <laughs> Fuck. I, I told you. I told you. <laughs> It's, um, and I mean, look, man, I'm sure there's a bunch of stuff that we couldn't even catch up on. Cause one of my, one of my biggest, um, curiosities was the woman with the blue hair. Cause she has the final shot of the film. She does. I don't know what she is. I don't know what she, obviously that scene at El Silencio was like a dream shattering yes. moment. Cause cause even you see Diane shaking. Yeah. It's the She's moment like, of realization. Yeah. And that the facade is breaking. I mean, yes. literally, the woman collapses uh, in front of us and breaks the facade or breaks the facade of her her beautiful performance. And well, I, I think blue... th- this like it's trying to break throughout the movie too. Yes, and it's but like, she's holding it. She's collapsed. She's she's keeping she's keeping it together. Yeah, she's keeping it going. But at Club Silencio, she can no longer keep it up. You know, there's another moment where the dream collapses slightly. When they find the dead body, mm-hmm. they find Diane's dead body. Yeah. And the film literally shows this. It's almost like she's her dream is like uh, this. It's like collapsing. She's displacing her personality because when Camilla, uh, Camilla slash Rita runs out. It's almost like the the there are multiple. How do you it's like the the images are being superimposed on top of one another. So you get this ghosting effect. It's almost like Diane's personality is almost splitting, you know, and she's she has to keep oh, the dream yeah. hold. She has to keep the dream from you know collapsing. I keep saying collapsing. It's uh-huh. a reference to Inception. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like in the what's his name, Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan saw Mulholland Drive and was like, 
do I turn this into an action movie? <laughs> Which, hey, I'm cool with. Um, but no, but but David Lynch did it first. <laughs> yeah. When Rita sees the body, you know, it's it's Diane finding it's Diane's subconscious seeing Diane's body of yeah. what will become or what has become. Mm-hmm. And the dream starts collapsing, she starts displacing her identity. It, it's collapsing, it's separating, it's ghosting. This movie is very much about dreams and what they mean to us, what they're capable of, the beauty, but also what they could do to us. Mm-hmm. And just what happens when you have these dreams that are not met, right? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you get the worst fucking case of blue balls in history where, <laughs> God damn it, my girl don't love me. I ain't got no job. I'm not shit. God damn it. Fuck. And he's like, well, dreams can have that effect on you, man. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the, the robe and there was also the coffee mug and the ashtray, I think. Were the, yes. The clues. Yes. So I, I forgot what hap- what's the deal with the coffee mug. But the ashtray, I did figure that out. I didn't know what that meant. Oh, OK. Um, so in the dream world. Right. They go to Diane Selway's apartment because they think that that's um, Rita's roommate. But they go to the address and there's this other woman there who's like, um, we switched apartments and she's kind of like upset about it. And then in the real world, we see that woman moving out of Betty's apartment. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And she says, my ashtray, I need it. And then she kind of like gives her the ashtray and then they walk out. And then when Diane fantasizes a little bit about Camilla and her being there, and then I think it even goes deeper into like the past, right? And that's when you have that second sex scene or almost sex scene. Mm -hmm. You see the ashtray that the roommate picked up already. So you know it's in the past. You also know, Mm -hmm. or it maybe you can infer that Diane left her girlfriend, who was the roommate, for Camilla. Because the ashtray was there still. Oh, damn. I did get the hint that this other, that that Diane and this other woman were dating. Yes. Because of just how that scene was was framed. It's very much like a, I'm getting all my stuff. And then I'm never going to see you Your again. Your dishes are in the box. Yeah. Yeah. I did notice that that ashtray because it's shaped like a piano. Mm-hmm. And you, the camera intentionally like goes in on it so you can see it. It's a unique ashtray. You know, there's hints like that all throughout the film. Um, the, the blue key is another one. We haven't talked about the homeless man. The homeless man. The, the greatest jump scare in movie history. <laughs> oh, yeah. It kills a dude. <laughs> I have kind of a theory about that. Okay. Very early on in the film, uh, there's a little side story at Winkie's at this restaurant. Uh, and it's these two guys talking to each other. And one of them is talking about a dream that he had where he saw this really horrendous homeless person by the back of this restaurant and how it just filled him with so much depression and, um, and hopelessness. And he wants to be, he wants to go to the back just to, 
see that it was a dream that that person's not actually there. But, you know, he goes out to the back. He sees the homeless person. The homeless person, like, slides out from behind a wall and he, like, collapses. And I think he dies. Yeah. I think that the homeless person is Diane. I agree. Or, like, Diane's guilt. It's like Diane, the evilness that Diane carries with, like, with her. Like, her jealousy and, like, all the nasty parts of Diane. That she tries to bury. And I think the fact that it, that the the man is behind Winkies, mm-hmm. which is the place where Diane meets with the hitman assassin. Yeah, to kill Camilla. That's like the and, most evil that Diane gets. Yes, I mean, and she looks villainous. Th- that's something I have to we have to talk about real quick. Is Naomi Watts's uh, acting is incredible because she starts Amazing. off the film with bright eyed um, country girl coming into the city to win it all. Mm-hmm. And yet when the dream snaps and Diane, it's no longer Betty, it's Diane. Her demeanor is completely different. It's so desperate. She's hunched over. Her hair is like it's in front of her eyes. She looks fucking defeated. At that moment, you realize, oh, that this is a different playing field. This is not where we just were. We're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> For reals. And Naomi Watts plays it so well. And that scene in the diner, she plays it like just a person who's been driven to madness at this mm-hmm. point. She is not the same par- par- she's not the same person that fell in love with Camilla or who Camilla fell in love with. And when she meets up with the assassin, who does she see? Look at her. She sees the guy from earlier. The guy who died by looking at the homeless person. It's almost like she thinks that he knows what she just did. It's like she he's seeing her for what she really is. Mm-hmm. So yeah. maybe that's another instance of her of the dream collapsing. I agree. So there's like we've talked a lot about what we think about what characters mean, what scenes mean, but there's still stuff I I don't really know how to explain. I don't really know who the woman with the blue hair is. I don't know why the landlord for the hotel that Adam stays in is the guy who is a stagehand at Club Silencio. It's the same actor. <gasps> oh, shit. I didn't even notice that. Why? I, I'm not really sure why. Well, the interesting thing is if we keep talking about it, I'm sure we're going to find more theories between mm-hmm. you and I. Yeah. And I'm sure if we go on the Internet, we're going to find a bunch of stuff. A bunch of stuff. Uh, and some of it doesn't make sense. I think sometimes I'm like, mm, I'm not sure about that, but it's part of the dialogue. You know, I think yes. um, movies like this, David Lynch makes movies so that we can like talk about it afterwards so that you don't just like get what you get, you know, two hours worth of entertainment and then just like forget about it. You know, by by talking about it, it kind of keeps the movie alive, keeps it going because it's in yeah. our minds. And he he's gone on record to say that he loves like these theories you know he loves people making their own interpretation of it and Mm -hmm. he hasn't he hasn't gone on record as saying this is what the story is about because he doesn't want to you know denounce people's theories if they don't align with what he says you know and he's the author if he says something people are going to take it as sacred yeah um so i while i do appreciate some directors or authors or whatever explaining what things mean i do appreciate them choosing not to 
because they want you to have your own experience. And And I'm sure we could be far off as well. Uh, And I'm sure someone can come in here and be like, well, this is what this means and stuff. And it's like, shit, that might just be more valid than what we said. Yeah. And that's the fun of it. Or we can not agree. And that's fine, too. It means uh, the movies mean whatever we want them to mean. You know? Yes. Um, It kind of makes the experience personal, too. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Every film, to a certain extent, is like that. I mean, we're all going to feel very differently about different different movies and different stories and who's mm-hmm. the hero and stuff. And some films will be a bit more direct about it. Like, hey, John Wayne is the hero. <laughs> or, you know, Tom Cruise is the hero. And maybe we'll in, maybe everyone will interpret it a little bit differently, you know? But you'll definitely get that feeling watching this film. Exactly. So let's get into a little bit of how this movie was made. So um, tw- Twin Peaks, right? Show mm-hmm. that David Lynch had on ABC, and him and Mark Frost, they came up with a story about this murder that happens in this small town in Washington, and this like really charismatic detective and all this. It's a great show. It's pro- probably my favorite show of all time. Huge ensemble cast and everything, but the studio wanted that murder to be resolved in the second season. Yes. So. They resolve that plot line. They tell you who the murderer was. And then people stopped watching the show. (laughs) And the show (laughs) got kind of weird. Maybe the quality suffered. Uh, And then the show was canceled. However, there was an idea for the third season. One of the more popular characters, Audrey Horn, was supposed to move to Hollywood and meet all these weird people in Los Angeles as she tries to make it as an actor. But the third season never happened. So it didn't happen. Then a few years later, ABC wanted something else from David Lynch. So he like kind of repurposes um, season three for Audrey uh, as Mulholland Drive. And he casts Naomi Watts for the main role of, of Betty. And at the time, Naomi Watts kind of had a hard time landing big movie roles. She wasn't like, I get in quotes, making it as a movie yep. actress, which is kind of interesting, right? <laughs> it, it's almost like art imitates life. Yeah. Um, and you know who else she was friends with? Uh, she had, kind of has an interesting life. She was, oh, well, her dad was one of, he worked with Pink Floyd, the band, but then he died very early when she was a child and they were kind of broke and then they moved to Australia. In Australia, she like studied acting and stuff, and she became really good friends with Nicole Kidman. Oh, okay. Nicole Kidman, you know, <gasps> the movie star. <laughs> oh, 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 I'm starting to see it. Yeah, it's wild how similar Betty is to Naomi Watts. So then Naomi Watts, um, she is having a hard time landing roles. She's auditioning with people. And she says her words, she'd sometimes feel like the directors weren't even looking her in the eye. One director was falling asleep as she was reading for him. And then she gets a call from David Lynch because he sees something in her headshot. And then they kind of like meet. And instead of like auditioning for the character, she just talks to him about her day. Like, hi. And, and, and he said, um, 
Nice to meet you, Naomi. It's got that intense ear-to-ear -ear grin. And, um, you know, smoking up a storm. So how's your day? Tell me everything. I'm like, well, what? Like, I got on the plane, and I'm in New York. I had theater tickets, and they told me to come here. So I came here, and wait, are you really interested in this? Do you... And he was like, yeah, tell me everything. You gotta remember, I was at a point where I'd been auditioning for 10 years and people could barely give you eye contact. But with David, he was just genuinely interested. Apparently, that's how David Lynch casts stuff. He doesn't audition people. He doesn't have people read scenes. He just talks to them. <laughs> and uh, I guess since then they've become really good friends because whenever she tells this story, she always in the three interviews and the one interview that I've seen uh, with her being transcribed for always does a David Lynch impression. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a lot of people do. A lot of people do, but she, the way she does it, she does it like, damn, I hope you guys are friends. Cause that could be kind of mean. <laughs> now, come on, Naomi. Just, you know, and he always speaks on his megaphone for like when he's two feet away from you as well, but has to have his megaphone to make his voice sound even more nasal. <laughs> but, you know, I was going to, you know, cause I was, Janie was not going to get ripped off. And so he was like, now go on, take him, take him by the balls, whip him off. <laughs> but I'm, they're really good friends. And she she gets the part, you know. There's something something in her eyes. Uh, and then, ABC does not like the pilot. They think it's too slow because this is supposed to be a TV show, and they're like, yeah. "Nah, pass." So Mulholland Drive is shelved. Then a French studio, Studio Canal, they yeah. um, pick it back up, and they're like, "We want to make this into a feature. Can you do it?" And he's like, "Yes." And then he was brainstorming and he came up with an additional 18 pages to finish the movie, which is essentially like the last 40 minutes of the movie, the kind of dream collapsing on itself. And due to the chemistry uh, with Naomi Watts and Laura Elena Herring, Herring. It's not that difficult of a last name. I, I don't know <laughs> why I keep forgetting the last name. And that's come from someone who's terrible with names. I know, right? She's great. <laughs> Laura Elena no, Herring. She's very good. Who? It's, it's fucking crazy. A little bit of, of her backstory. Um, she was an actress. She came from Mexico. She was the victim of gun violence. She was hit by a stray bullet when she was 12. The drive-by shooting. What the fuck? Oh, she was married to the great-great-grandson of a count. And then divorced a few years later and retains the title that she had still, I guess. And then went to Hollywood. So, like, this article that I'm reading this from uh, is a Vanity Fair piece done around when the Twin Peaks revival was happening. And they kind of describe her as, like, a real-life femme fatale, which is kind of like what she is in the movie, right? The character of um, Camilla. Mm -hmm. So then they shoot this. They added the love story because of the chemistry that the two actresses had together. So that whole angle was not even a thing in the pilot, in the original inception of Mulholland Drive. And 
as we just talked about it, everything just comes together so smoothly. I have no, this is like a one in a million kind of thing happening. Because this man literally repurposes an entire story to fit for a film and it works great with it. It almost, if you had taken that plot out, I don't know how you could have a story. Yeah. Honestly, I don't know what would the resolution be. I guess you would never know because when he came up with Twin Peaks, I think someone asked him like, oh, well then when would we know who killed Laura Palmer? And he's like, you'd never know. <laughs> so I guess this would just go on until it would get canceled or end. I don't know. But I think the way this movie is, it's like perfect. In the weird way, I'm kind of happy it didn't turn into a TV show mm-hmm. because the movie is the movie's great. Yeah. In its own right, it's great. I don't know. I like the concept of David Lynch kind of exploring Hollywood mm-hmm. in like a tween, Twin Peaks-esque kind of way. But, I mean, the allure of this movie is trying to figure out what it is. And you do get a satisfying kind of conclusion to this story. I'm like, I don't know if I could have actually sat down through uh, the movie or the TV show and maybe found it as satisfying. I don't know, because you could say the exact same thing about Twin Peaks. You're like, well, the mystery as to who killed Laura Palmer is what's driving the story. Um, But I mean, he had no intention of entering that. Yeah. So I don't don't know. Yeah, it's so weird. I like the movie really well. Yeah. And the cast, like who he puts, who he chose to be in this in this movie based off of not auditions, but conversations he's had. He hasn't even seen Naomi Watts in a movie before. But he casted her. But he casted her from he, talking to her and seeing her headshot. He casted Billy Ray Silas because he likes Billy Ray Silas. <laughs> Cyrus, he liked the he liked the song. It's funny because it reminds me of something. Um, so we we had one of our guests, Brandon, who has his own podcast. Cinenation. Go check it out. He celebrated his birthday. Uh, I think last last weekend mm-hmm. and I was talking to someone, one of his friends, and they pointed something out. They were like, originally, uh, Breaking Bad was supposed to be a movie. I was like, oh, that's that's interesting. He's like, yeah, it's basically the first three episodes were was a feature, but he kind of made it into a TV show. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's true or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of took out what he said and ran with it and i was like isn't it interesting how some stories just translate so perfectly for tv and others perfectly for film yeah i think there's a scenario where this tv show worked better as a movie and i think the movie version of breaking bad would not have been as good as the tv version absolutely absolutely um i think that there, there's you, you can kind of listen to david lynch talk and be like this guy's kind of crazy you know but there yes he's he's not though he's like crazy smart Because he talks about this whole like ideas thing and how ideas can come and go. You can't invent an idea that just come to you and you just have to stick, be true to it and express that idea in some kind of medium, be it a painting or film or TV show or whatever. And you'll be okay as long as you stay true to the idea. It's, it's like this thing that's like changing, but it at the same time, like it's something in it is constant but it's changing as time goes on and like the resources that are available to you, you know, studios saying no other studios saying yes, the actors that come in, what they bring with them. And he does, he has this way of like getting everybody to see it without having to explain it to them. I think 
people get to, like I don't with like um with like the Star Wars stuff and the Game of Thrones stuff, people get upset because there was no plan or whatever. But that's all bullshit. You know, the plan doesn't matter. It's it's the the core idea that's important. And if you stick true to that, you'll be fine. You know? These writers, they don't have all the answers because it's a creative process to get to the end. The thing is, it it feels nice when you watch something and it just kind of comes together really well, right? This ha- It happened with Mulholland Drive and it happened with Breaking Bad. I read a story where Vince Gilligan was like, when they wrote the season five opener, they were like, we didn't know why he was going to use that light machine gun, that LMG. We didn't know what he was going to phase. We didn't know what threat. We just kind of wrote it in. Again, I don't know if that's confirmed or not. I It could be wrong. It could just be, you know. No, I think it's true. I think that sometimes you just have to, like, go with what feels right and true yeah. to the and story, I, you know? Yeah, and it feels like, and, you know, maybe they didn't have a plan for it, but they put in the work and they figured it out. Same with David Lynch with this movie. He had a pilot for a TV show. He you know, maybe he didn't know how it was going to turn out to be a movie, but he was like, well, I'll figure it out. These Star Wars movies, you know, it's it just seemed like there was never a moment to fully resolve what was happening. And that could have been a number of things. It could have been based on the talents of J.J. and Ryan, maybe the failures of them as artists, or maybe it could have just been the limitations of working on a multi-billion dollar franchise for a multi-billion dollar studio. It could be that as well. J.J. and Ryan are very talented director, writers. I mean, you know, let's not forget, people loved Force Awakens. But I think the idea, like the creative like soul, was yeah. tainted by fear of audience approval. Especially with the last one. Yeah, like that I, felt like I, someone I was like, all right, we're going to change course. We're going to go back on several decisions made earlier. We're going to browse Reddit and see what people want from these movies. And we're going to take out things that people didn't like. I don't think that that's yeah. authentic to the vision. You know what I mean? It's fear. It's yeah. fear out it's, of... It's why it's they that- resolved the, the Laura Palmer story. It's like the studio interference, people not believing in that idea i guess it's not your film no more it's not your film <laughs> it's not your film but i mean but but let's be real that probably did happen probably mm-hmm. that way too i mean twin peaks happened what in the 90s 91 90 and 91 90, was 1991 the... this movie came out in 2001 and there are multiple scenes of people being in boardrooms and stuff i guarantee you this is david lynch has some experience like that and he put it in the film. Absolutely. This this guy's been fighting studios since Dune, I think. <laughs> oh, my. Oof. Yeah. You know, it, it's nice to have a plan, but you do need to realize what you need to say true to that spirit. Right. Yeah. And if they had, I mean, look, the Mandalorian, if we're going back to Star Wars, the Mandalorian stays true to the Star Wars spirit. That's why it's so successful. I really don't know that many people who dislike the Mandalorian. Even I was, uh, you know this very much. I wasn't a big fan of the first three episodes. I said this to you. You're like, what? I was like, yeah, yeah. I was like, dude, this this is fucking badass, man. This is classic Star Wars. And I was like, I don't know. I'm not buying it. And then I took care of your cats one weekend. I binged it. And I was like, oh, wait, no, this is fantastic. It's great. <laughs> I love this. And, you know, maybe there were other people who felt the same way. I was like, ah, this doesn't feel as good or, you know, it's not as exciting as the other Star Wars stuff. But 
Dave Filoni and John Favreau didn't care. They're like, they stuck to their guns and made something that feels wholly Star Wars and amazing. I think it's really, really funny that um, Fioni, Dave Filoni, Filoni, I, I believe so. He got advice on live action shooting, live action stories from Ryan Johnson. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, the, the man's been working in animation for a while. So, mm-hmm. but I mean, you know, I think I think Ryan Johnson had that spirit too. I think JJ had that spirit too. They, you know, but given given what we know, you know, there may have been a moment where the studio where Disney was like, "This is not your film." They, yeah, they had been they had been firing people off of Star Wars. They fired. Holy shit, yeah. They fired Lloyd and Miller. Oh, uh, Lord and Miller. They fired. Well, they didn't fire Gareth Edwards, but then they kind of repurposed the ending of Rogue One. The ending was, was not Gareth Edwards. It was somebody else. Tony Gilroy was the guy who came in, did some rewrites, and he reshot the ending. Uh, you're right, Lord. L- Phil Lord and Chris Miller got fired, replaced by Ron Howard. Um, there were, People were dropping like motherfucking flies. It's because they, they weren't allowed to like pursue this like idea the way that they saw it, you know? I mean, I'm mean, look, man. I don't want to. I don't want to shit on Disney because, look, man. In the end of the day, I'm not the one that <laughs> owns Star Wars, right? If I own Star Wars, the amount of pre- like the decision making that has to go behind this stuff, it's really big. It's a lot of pressure. I, I don't want to throw Kathleen Kennedy under the bus because, yeah, yo, fuck, she ruins Star Wars. No, man, no. This is films are collaborative experience uh, projects. Not one person is responsible for it. Um, I think it's so the I, uh, the uh, old cowboy out there, you know. It's the cowboy. <laughs> it's the cowboy. It's the cowboy that's just saying, "It is what it is." You know, um, he's out there and he's not going away anytime soon. You know. So, speaking of Star Wars and David Lynch, do you know he almost directed Return of the Jedi? I did know that. <laughs> I am kind of happy he did it, <laughs> dude. I would love to see. As far like I love Return of the Jedi, but of the three, it's the worst one. It's, yeah, but it's, it's not like bad, bad. It's not bad. I don't know because I'm seeing it through the Star Wars goggles. So, so I love it regardless. Look, I, <laughs> I love David Lynch. I wouldn't want to. St- okay. I would want a David Lynch Star Wars film if he got to do whatever he wanted. Right? Exactly. Like, yeah. What, like if, if he <laughs> wrote it and directed it and everything and like Disney was like, hey, here's a blank check. I'm all for that. But in terms of working under George Lucas who was kind of the architect of Star Wars back then. Yeah, I don't think that would have gone well at all. That would have been a Dune 2.0. Well, Dune was the way it was because of studio interference, I guess. Oh, I get I guarantee you that. I mean, I guarantee it would you, be you it would be the most weird, wonderful, terrifying Star Wars movie ever made. Guarantee be you. the most confusing <laughs> one. People <laughs> yeah. would be like, so was it all a dream? I know that it will never happen. Yeah. Because he will never work for a major studio ever again. But yeah. I I would be lying if I told you I wouldn't want to see it. <laughs> I'd be lying if I said I wasn't curious. Would I Do I necessarily want it? I don't know. But I'm definitely like, well, well, let's see what he could do. Let's get into our quotes. Yeah. At the end of our episodes, we we chose not to do like a out of five rate this movie out of five system. Um, Because we want to, like, be different. So we have this thing where we talk about a quote that best represents how we feel about the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And usually 
I can follow the rules, but this time I, I have two. I have two quotes. <laughs> He's pulling the George. I'm pulling a George. I never follow the rules. How many quotes do you have this time? I have one because I it's <laughs> one from my favorite scene. And I think it encompasses everything I like about this movie. And it does it in a way that I like it. So this is a movie where I'm like, yes, I have one quote, but it's a great quote. It's my favorite quote that I've said from all these from all these reviews so far. Okay, you go first then. So my quote is when they're in Club Silencio and the guy says, No, I banda. I love that quote. <laughs> I've been saying it nonstop since I've since I've listened watched the movie. Um comes from my favorite part of the film which is the performance that in El Silencio. Um, and it translates to, obviously, um, there's no band. It, it acknowledges that the play is fake. The movie's fake. Everything's fake. This movie is fake. The, the, the actors, the sets, it's all planned. It's all rehearsed. It's, there's a lighting guy, you know, checking the light meter. You know, there's a, there's a PA running around. You know, it's, it's all fake. But we still buy into it. There is truth in that it's, fakeness. Yes. It's why we watch movies. I love it because it, it it perfectly highlights the allure of films. You know, they're they're fake things, but we still love them. They speak truth. And I could mm -hmm. and honestly, I do relate to to Diane, you know, uh, in a weird way. I've never had someone assassinated. Yeah, I, but, I think we but, all can relate to her. I relate to her a lot as well. Absolutely. I mean, you know, that heartbreak and this is the moment where it's too much to bear. You know, mm -hmm. it is the end of this dream. It's it's coming to a close. She is not going to have Camilla or Rita. She's not going to have Rita anymore. She's going to have to go back and realize who she is, where she's at and who she doesn't have anymore. And yeah, man, and that's what that quote means for me. No, I banda. Literally everything I said is. Trace back to those three words. And I think that's incredible. The fact that he's able to do that with three fucking words. Okay. Um, I have I have two quotes. Um one of them is uh just like the the represents how I feel about the casting of Naomi Watts. And everybody in this everybody in this movie is well casted, but Naomi Watts though, I feel like when I read about what she was going through when she was cast and how the things and wind up being for her character, how like intertwined they are. I'm like, damn, she was the perfect person to play this role. Yep. So my quote that represents that is, this is the girl. <laughs> <laughs> this is um, yeah. Which is what the, movie producers say to Adam, the director, they're like, this is the girl you're going to pick. You don't have any say in the matter. But it's also what Diane says to the hitman. This is the girl you're going to kill. Oh, she does say that. <laughs> Fuck. I didn't even, yeah, you're right. Shit. Which is why that line is said so threateningly, you know, because she's saying that because she wants the hitman to kill her. Yeah. Um, also, the other quote I have, I, I just love these moments of comedy in David Lynch movies, like this deadpan sense of humor, um, which that's how I felt about the cowboy when he's he's like, uh, a man's attitude goes some ways, the way his life will be. Is that something you agree with? And Adam says, sure. Now, 
Did you answer because you thought that's what I wanted to hear? Which I think is the way people kind of treat film analysis sometimes. Sometimes I think people <laughs> you just like agree with people because they sound smart and they know what they're talking about, but you don't really understand. <laughs> well, you, you know how I feel? You know what I think? I think that's how people are about like how good something is or not. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Like, I think so like, too. Like, okay, do you actually believe that Citizen Kane is one of the greatest films of all time? Do you actually believe that? Or do you just say that because <laughs> everyone else is saying it? That's how, that's how, I, yeah. I was thinking about this with Game of Thrones, but it's like, do you really hate the finale of Game of Thrones? Or do you just hate it because everyone else hates it? Yeah, I, I think that there's like a, a way that people feel about things because that's the way they're supposed to feel about it. But like, is it, is that really how you feel? Is that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think, I think it, people, it, well, it, people lie all the time without yes. really meaning to. They don't really think about it. They just, they, they lie and that becomes the truth. But it's a lie. It's, it's weird. That, but that's life, dude. Yeah. And I, I love how that quote ends where it's like, where Adam's like, I agree with what you said, truthfully. What I'd say, and um, <laughs> that a man's attitude determines to a large extent how his life will be. And then the cowboy gives him the sickest bird where he's like, so since you agree, you must be someone who does not care about the good life. <laughs> and I, I was like, this dude's about to kill him. Uh, <sighs> I, well, love I, that. I was like, you're about to fucking die at him. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's a great quote, man. Yeah. And for the record, I don't hate the Game of Thrones finale. I don't either. It's good. I feel like it's like, I don't think that the show is like the greatest show to ever be made. I never no, thought I, that. It's a really it's a great show. Yeah, it's a really fun, entertaining show that it it kind of goes into like these really dark, twisted, like fantastical elements that are like kind of missing from the um, Lord of the Rings and, and stuff. But it's like it's very gratuitous. And I don't oh, think yeah. I don't think that it's like gratuitous for the sake of storytelling. Sometimes I feel like it's gratuitous for the sake of being gratuitous. Well, it's like we're the adult version of Lord of Rings. Yeah, it's like get over it. What's the worst thing that could happen right now? And then they do that. And they do that for seven or eight. How many seasons of the show last? Eight? Uh, eight seasons. They do it every single season. But by the end, people are like, I've had enough of this. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know, man. I mean, I, I spoke with Chris about this and he's not a fan of the finale. It doesn't seem like he totally hates it, but I'm like, well, yeah, if you're not a fan, that's OK. You know, but yeah, people are like, it's the worst show ever. It's like you loved it up until like the last two episodes, you know, it's or the last season. I don't think people are like retroactively really hating the entire past two seasons. Because yeah. they weren't based off of the books. Dude, that guy is like paralyzed from fear not to finish his books because he saw the backlash. It got. <laughs> because of you guys. You fucked him up. Yeah. <sighs> but okay. Sidetrack. Sidetrack. That was our episode on Mulholland Drive. Definitely recommend it to you guys. It's a great watch. Hopefully you can... if. You haven't seen the movie yet. You can listen to this episode. Not worry about the spoilers. Maybe, maybe our our theories will help you out. 
Uh, if not, maybe you'll have your own interpretation. We'd love to hear them. If you have interpretations for why the hotel manager is the guy at Club Silencio or what the woman with the blue hair represents or what the hell a coffee cup was supposed to mean. <laughs> what coffee? Maybe it's a coffee cup that that uh, the waitress breaks at the restaurant. Oh, Betty, the actual Betty. Yeah. Uh, maybe I, get, I don't know. I didn't see a coffee cup though. Yeah, but if you have theories, tweet at us. You know, tell us what you think. We we are on Twitter and Instagram at retrograde underscore pod. I know there's a big like Facebook. Facebook was down and Instagram was down and everything, but Twitter was still strong. So maybe Twitter is a better, more reliable place to reach us. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we're on Instagram too and Facebook. Retrograde podcast on Facebook. Um, working on a TikTok very slowly. YouTube, we're also there. Retrograde podcast on YouTube. And if you want to be in our Discord, just hit us up and we'll send you an invite. Uh, we post epi new episodes every other week. But I think this week, or this month, it's Spooky Month. So we're doing an extra bonus Halloween episode on The Descent. But yes. in two weeks, I think you said you were going to surprise me with something for our next episode? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to keep in line with the spoopiness, but, you know, maybe throw a curveball in there. Oh, God. Maybe, uh, maybe not... Uh... Not the kind of scary we imagine, but we're some, worth, something worth revisiting that I think our generation has very, very fond memories of. What is it? You know, just have to wait and see, man. Right, it better not be fucking Norbit. No, 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 no. Not Norbit. I'm saving that for another time. Okay. Norbit will, will happen, but not in two weeks. Something <laughs> else. So you're not, we're going to leave our listeners in suspense? Exactly. Leave them hanging. All right. Once I, once I say it, the allure is gone, man. And then you're going to be like, oh, okay. Yeah, I guess. Whereas like in two weeks, it's like, oh, I, this movie makes sense. <laughs> I, get, I have to pitch it to you, see if you want to do it. But I think it's a pretty good episode, a uh, pretty good movie to talk about. All right. Well, that does it for this episode of Retrograde Podcast. We will see you in two weeks. Bye bye. <laughs>